players in this year's draft. Plus, on a throwback Thursday, we'll look back at some of the classic what-if scenarios. Another walk-off for the Atlanta Braves. Plus, coming up, what is going on with Roger Goodell, the NFL, and this investigation? DeAndre Hopkins speaks for the first time since his suspension. We'll also catch up with a member of the Charleston Battery in the final hour this afternoon. Which NFL teams are ready to take a step forward, take a step back this year? And which NFL teams right now are being overhyped and underhyped? We'll get to that coming up and a whole lot more throughout the afternoon. With it till 3 on this Thursday. You can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays, on Facebook at ESPN Charleston, via email, studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com, or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you till uh, 3 on this Thursday, head over to charlestonsportsradio.com, click on our show page. You can leave a comment for the show right there. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted, or you can take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Trent's on the steel wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing great on this beautiful Thursday. Tough night for my Giants last night. Walk off against the Braves. Not great, not great, but the boys are looking all right. Tough night for my Lightning as well, Luke. Yeah. That wasn't great in overtime. Had a walk off and an overtime loss. Not a great night for your boy over here behind the glass, but I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day in the low country. Glad to be here on the Morrow Midday Show with you, sir. Yeah, always a pleasure. Hey, NBA draft tonight. Let's dive right in. Got plenty to get to. We'll talk about it throughout the afternoon. Yeah, the NBA draft is interesting in that nowadays we're always looking for instant gratification. You don't necessarily get it from the NBA draft. You're drafting a lot of younger kids one year removed from high school. They're still only 19 years old. You look at a Chet Holmgren. He still has to grow into his body if he wants to be successful at the NBA level. In the NFL, you draft a quarterback. Andrew Luck comes in. He leads it to the playoffs right away in year one. Right, even Mac Jones helps get the Patriots to the playoffs. Jamar Chase leads the Bengals to a Super Bowl last year. You could see rookies have a big impact in the NFL. In the NBA, it may take a couple of years. You could see those flashes, but you're not getting necessarily a LeBron James first year. Okay, now we could go win a championship. It's a guy you're going to have to develop, you build around, and give it a couple of years. Right, even for the Celtics, it took a couple of years for those guys to get them to the finals. Giannis took a couple of years to really pop. You go back and you look, LeBron James won 35 games his first year under 500. Kevin Durant won 20. Michael Jordan won 38 games his first year under 500. Luka Doncic, 33. Anthony Davis, 27. Zion Williamson, 30 a couple years ago. Not often do you see a rookie come in and be the star of a team that has a winning season. And nowadays, right, we want immediate results and impact. You send a text message, you get a little flustered when you don't get a response within a couple of minutes. And when it comes to the NBA draft, you get these great pieces tonight, something to be excited about, but we don't know for a couple of years if it will pan out. It'd be like uh, I was really excited for the Irishman to come out, but we were hearing about it for about five years. And then you're just waiting around. Yeah, I can't wait for this movie whenever it's going to come out, whenever it's going to come together. And finally, after talking about it, 
and talk about the cast and the story and the book and the movie. Finally, after five years, it came out. About time. Right, when you go buy a car, you want to drive it off the lot. You don't want to have to be told, like, yeah, come back, pick it up a year from now. No, you're excited. You want the new car. You're excited when you get these new players in the draft, but you're not going to feel the immediate impacts right away. You have to give it a year or two. Some guys will show flashes and potential early, maybe even by year two, right? John Morant looked really good early on. But it usually takes at least to that second year to try to elevate the team. Or even if they make the playoffs, usually it's like a 7-8 seed. They won 32 games. Not often do you see a rookie come in and immediately turn around a team first year. I mean, really not since Larry Bird did it over 40 years ago, and that was a different era. When we look at the draft tonight, there's the belief that there's a clear top three and that they'll be the top three picks of the draft in whatever particular order. And it's, uh, you know, Paolo Boncaro, and it's Chet Holmgren, and it's Jabari Smith are the top three. And we'll break down these guys a little bit in just a moment. Then you look just outside the top three, and you have interesting names like, you know, Keegan Murray and Jaden Ivey. And then you have the wild card of a Shaden Sharp. But here was um, Seth Greenberg this morning on Get Up talking about which one of these top players. Because we do this all the time in the NBA draft. We always say, it's a three-player draft. And then it turns out the best player is actually taken seventh or 15th or later on in the draft that you didn't even realize. But we believe these are the premier top three players. Those three I mentioned that will probably go the top three picks. Here was Seth Greenberg this morning talking about which player in this year's draft could be the most impactful in their NBA career. It's going to be Jamari Smith, and I think he's going to Orlando. I know what everyone's saying, but I think he's going to go to Orlando. I think why? Because not only does he do it offensively, but he can do it defensively. And the Orlando Magic, they need to change their culture, change their identity. They've developed or, or, or drafted players, but not two-way players. They need some toughness, some physicality, and some guys that can play both sides of the floor. Jabari Smith can score it. He can shoot it from the three. And he can be a lockdown defender at multiple positions, switching one through five. I hope that's clear what you're seeing on your screen. And that's what Seth was referencing when he said, I know what people are saying. Overnight. That was this morning on Get Up. What they showed on the screen were the odds that have changed overnight where Paolo Boncaro has become a heavy favorite to be the number one pick in tonight's draft. Greenberg believes Jabari Smith will be the guy and that he is or should be the guy uh, going number one. What's interesting about the NBA draft is that we focus on these top picks. And we say it's only a three-player draft. And where's Jabari Smith going to go? And Chet Holmgren is going to be the next Kevin Durant. And Paolo Boncaro is a star. But typically, the best player of these drafts do not come at the top of the draft. Or at least not the number one pick. Right in 2019, I think John Morant's the best player. He was taken two. So high in the draft, but not number one. Luka Doncic, the year prior, was drafted third overall. High in the draft but not one or two. You're not having that debate over Jabari Smith or Chet Holmgren. may not matter. Right? The year prior, Jason Tatum was taken third. You go back to 2016, maybe that was the last time the number one pick was the best player, if you want to tell me Ben Simmons. But I don't know, maybe a Jamal Murray who went later in the draft. We'll see about Jalen Brown. At least those guys play. At least they shoot the ball in the playoffs. 2015, Devin Booker was drafted 13th overall, probably the best player from that draft. Jokic in 2014, best player in the draft taken in the second round. Giannis went 15th overall in 2013, was the best player in that draft. 2012, we could have another debate. Anthony Davis went number one. Maybe you prefer Damian Lillard, who went later on in the first round. Again, at least he, outside of this year, is usually out there playing. In 2011, Kawhi Leonard, best player in the draft, uh, was drafted 15th overall. 2010, Paul George was taken 10th. You go back to 2009, right? Steph Curry, drafted 7th. Russell Westbrook in 2008, best player in the draft, was taken 4th. 
even 2007. Yes, Durant was taken second, but everybody believed Greg Oden, who went first, was the best player in the draft. Turned out he was quite the disappointment, and Durant's a star. 2006 wasn't a great draft. You'd probably say Kyle Lowry was the best player in the draft. He was taken at the end of the first round. 2005, Chris Paul was taken fourth overall, best player from that draft. And then 2004, one of the rare instances, maybe the last time, depends what you think about Anthony Davis, but could have been the last time that the true best player was the number one pick in 2004. That was Dwight Howard. Point being that usually the best player in the draft is not taken first overall. Usually the best player of the draft isn't even taken towards the very top. We focus so much on these top three players and maybe somebody else a few years from now who surprises us as the best player. In fact, here was John Rothstein, who covers college basketball for CBS. He was on CBS Sports Radio, and he was making the same point, that we focus so much on these top three, but Rothstein believes the best player in this year's draft could be somebody else outside of the top three. You know, I understand the buzz at the top around the big three. I understand the uniqueness of Chet Holmgren. I understand Jabari Smith being, you know, at first glance, Kevin Durant, but at second glance, maybe being somebody who can have a Rashard Lewis-type career in the NBA. And I understand how effortless Paolo Bancaro can make offense look against high-level competition, shooting close to 50% from the field and 50 from three in the NCAA tournament for Duke. But I'll say this, Zach. It would not shock me down the road if we look back on this draft and we look at the three guys I mentioned as really good players and pieces to the puzzle on good NBA teams, but the best player in the 2022 NBA draft has a chance to be Purdue's Jaden Ivey. And I look at the way the NBA has shifted. And look, let's be honest right now. The NBA and college basketball are essentially two different games right now. And I think you've seen that reiterated by the surplus and the volume of the back-to-the-basket big men that have opted to return to the college game. But Jaden Ivey's ability to be a combo guard at the collegiate level and then potentially transition to the one and play in better space is not obviously identical to what we saw from Russell Westbrook and Donovan Mitchell, but it's comparable. And I think when you get Jaden Ivey into a game where he's surrounded by shooters and you get Jaden Ivey into a game where he's not playing with a lumbering big man at the five like he did when he was at Purdue, which is part of what makes Purdue, you know, one of the best programs in the Big Ten, he is going to reach a different level. So I would not shock me at all down the road if Jaden Ivey winds up being the best player in the 2022 NBA draft. John Rothstein breaking it down. Believes that Ivey, the first guy outside of that top three, could be the best player. He may be the most interesting in this draft because when you look at this draft board, the Magic are picking first overall, and Orlando likes their size. Everybody believes they're going to take Jabari Smith. Now Vegas suddenly changed the odds where Paolo Bancaro became a heavy favorite, and a lot of sports books actually took the bet off the board. There may be something going on behind the scenes where somebody has some sort of information. However, Woj, who's usually pretty accurate and good with this stuff, still tweeted out that he believes the Magic will go with Jabari Smith first overall. Then you get to the Thunder at number two. And Oklahoma City has all sorts of draft picks tonight. And for a team like the Thunder, that may be who's willing to make a, take a chance on a Chet Holmgren. Because if that doesn't work out, you got plenty of other picks as well. If you have only one first-round pick, right, you may not be as likely or willing 
to take a big swing on a Chet Holmgren. Maybe the Thunder would take Chet number two. However, Holmgren has not sent his medicals to Orlando or Oklahoma City, apparently trying to avoid those two teams. The Rockets would be picking at third, which maybe they would go Paolo Banquero, and then the Kings rent number four. And we get all sorts of reports that everybody's trying to trade up with the Kings for that number four spot, maybe to try to get a Jaden Ivey. Because despite how much we focus on the top three, somebody of those four players I just referenced will have to be available at number four, whether it's Ivey or maybe a Boncaro, or a Holmgren, or maybe somehow Jabari Smith slips that far. And teams like the Knicks and everybody else, they want to get up to that four slot where the Kings are to be able to draft one of those top four players. It'll be interesting to see how things play out tonight. Now, when I look at this field, I think Paolo Boncaro will be a star in the NBA. And I would say Jabari Smith, I'd give him like a half star. Jaden Ivey, probably a half star. Right, when you look at these uh, NBA drafts, I just gave you the data. You go back, you look at a lot of the top picks. Most of the top picks, the top of the draft, don't actually work out. So when I look at these guys that we hear referenced, Paolo Boncaro is my favorite. I do like Jabari Smith's profile, and I'm certainly being persuaded on Jaden Ivey as well. Not high on Chet Holmgren. But I think Boncaro's the best player. As John Rothstein said in that clip, he shot almost 50% from the floor. I saw him live this past year in the Citadel played him. Now, we also faced Anthony Edwards his one year at Georgia before he was the number one pick. And I thought Boncaro was more impressive in person than Anthony Edwards was. I think Boncaro is more polished coming out of college than Anthony Edwards was. I like Paolo Boncaro a lot. He would be my number one pick tonight. And I did grow up rooting for the Magic as well. They have the number one pick tonight. I would love to see them take Boncaro. I think Jabari Smith is the second best player in this draft class. He's 6'10". He led the SEC in three-pointers. He's been compared to Kevin Durant. He can play, as Seth Greenberg said earlier, on both ends of the floor. I like Jabari Smith a lot. Then I would probably put Jaden Ivey third. He's the most athletic guard in the draft. And in March Madness, averaged about 20 points per game, going up against good competition in big moments. I also like Keegan Murray. Keegan Murray was number one in offensive rating in college basketball this past year. Zion Williamson was number one his one year at Duke. Damian Lillard was number one in offensive rating a decade ago before being drafted. That's pretty good. But the one maybe concern with Keegan Murray, if it's a concern, is that he will be 22 by the time the season starts. And if he's drafted in the top five tonight, he'll be just the second player, 22 years old, to go in the top five in the last decade. Even though it doesn't seem like a big deal, you could think back to when you were 22. It seems so young. In the NBA, some teams are turned off by the fact that he may be 22 and there's another kid who's 19. And there's three years, more room there, also more room to grow. You wonder or worry, has Keegan Murray already hit his ceiling? Was he successful? Was he number one in offensive rating because he was 22, playing against 18-year-olds in college? And the other thought being, well, why are you still available at 22? Right? If you were really that good, you would have already been drafted. Instead, you're coming to the NBA now when you're 22. Paolo Boncaro, right, one year played. Chet Holmgren, he's 19. Keegan Murray, 22 years old in the draft tonight but he's intriguing as well statistically analytically was the number one offensive player in college basketball this past year then you get to Chet Holmgren and I intentionally get to him next because I don't think he's better or will be better than those other guys I mentioned and the big concern of course is the build he's the anti-Zion Williamson we were afraid Zion Williamson was too big and it's panned out that way we're afraid Chet Holmgren's too small and I think it will also pan out that way and people are split on him one scout called him uh, Kevin Durant on the offensive end. Another scout in the league said he is years away 
People don't really know which direction he's going to go in or what he could bring to the table. And there are concerns when you look back at like a Sean Bradley. You look back at some of these other guys. Brandon Ingram is smaller than Chad Holmgren, but he too, right? He's like 6'9", but he's, he was thin. He's had some leg injuries. You look back at these guys who are tall, who are thin, who can't compete physically right away in the NBA and how that sets up their careers, and it usually doesn't go all that well. Holmgren is one year removed from high school, and he's going to be 20 years old. He's going to be the second player ever drafted in the first round who will be over 7 foot and yet under 200 pounds. I have a lot of questions and concerns about Chet Holmgren. I do think he's more of a project. I don't know if he'll work out. I think back to Kristaps Porzingis, who was taller and bigger. He was 7'3", but he was also considered too thin for his size. And he's had all sorts of injuries in the NBA. Hasn't really worked out. I'm big on body types. I think body types are important. When I look at quarterbacks and I look at NBA players. In baseball, it's different. Because baseball, number one, you see Jose Altuve, right, is an all-time great hitter. Doesn't matter how big you are in baseball. Dustin Pedroia, right, was fantastic. Didn't matter how small he was. Plus, you go to the minors, you don't make it to the big leagues for a couple years anyways, you can develop, you can grow. In the NBA, you come in, you got to be a starter right away. The NFL, nowadays, no patience. You draft a quarterback, you want them to be a starter. Week one of year one. And in the NFL, right, quarterback, it's important. You got There's a reason why you can't go to the NFL till three years after high school. you got to be able to have the body to go out there and handle it. We're seeing a lot of quarterbacks get buffed up this offseason. It's important to look at a quarterback and see, can this guy, does he have the body of an NFL quarterback? Can he take the hits, the punishment? Does he still need to develop? You look at a Cam Newton, a Josh Allen, right, these big bodies. People fell in love with Ryan Mallett, big dude. NBA similar. I want an NBA body for my guy. If I'm going to draft you at the top of the draft coming out of college, I want an NBA body right away. I don't want you to have to come in and put on 40 pounds. Anthony Edwards is a lot better than I was anticipating at a quicker rate, in part because he came in with an NBA body. You can work on your shot. Right? Magic Johnson improved his outside shot. So, too, did Michael Jordan. You could work on your jumper. You could work on your ball skills, all that other stuff. But at least you come in with that body that you can bang around and compete right away. You may still be a little raw, but you won't be completely overmatched physically. To bring it back to quarterbacks, it's a lot like mobile quarterbacks in the NFL. That when they first come in, they may still be learning how to read a defense, learning the playbook, right? learning uh, the, the, to get on the same page with their wide receivers. But in the meantime, they can still make plays with their legs, and that can get them through. In the NBA, while you're still developing into an NBA player or working on your jump shot, at least you have the body that you can still go out there, right? bang around, play some defense, crash the boards, do something out on the floor. For Chad Holmgren, while you're waiting, that's like that quarterback that you're waiting to just develop into something. Chad Holmgren, you're going to have to wait for him to put on some pounds. Then how does he play at that weight? Can he go up against these big bodies? I have a lot of concern for Chet Holmgren in that size. I would stay away from him. I don't think he pans out to be one of the best players in this draft. And then lastly, the wild card in all this is Shaden Sharp. Reclassified, went to Kentucky, never played. And he spent this past year with Kentucky but never playing. He's supposed to be a star, but he's a bit of a secret. Because right? we never saw him play. Even when, when you, uh, If you were to go to Kentucky practice, he was always off on his own. Just kind of did his own thing like an independent study for a year before entering the draft tonight. And according to reports, didn't do great with the interviews, didn't do great necessarily with the workouts either, but there's a lot of potential there. We just haven't seen it. Never played in college, coming uh, essentially right out of high school, but potentially with a really high ceiling as well. Shaden Sharp may be the big wild card in all this tonight. We'll be interesting to see how the draft plays out.
Hey, when we come back, it is a throwback Thursday. What are the, some, of some of the biggest what-ifs in NBA draft history? The more Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Coming up, what are some of the biggest what-ifs in NBA draft history on this Throwback Thursday? It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, I was supposed to be out at uh, CSL Plasma today in North Charleston in studio instead. I mean, you wouldn't know the difference. I could just tell you I'm out there anyways. I'm donating plasma right now as we speak. But as I always say, if you have a microphone, it's your job to uh, always tell the truth. So we're in studio today. Uh, but nonetheless, it's still Donor Appreciation Week. So go out and uh, check them out. Two locations in North Charleston. There's one across from the Northwoods Mall, and there's one across from the Old Naval Hospital as well, both on Rivers Avenue in North Charleston. And it's Donor Appreciation Week, so if you go out there, uh, they're grilling hamburgers and hot dogs today. So that's pretty good. That's the one at the uh, 3725 Rivers Avenue. And they have giveaways on site all week. You'll be entered to win 25, a $25 bonus, a $150 bonus. There are two grills that are going to be given away. They're giving away speakers and laptops or TVs and fire sticks and tablets, all sorts of stuff, plus bonus cash for all military teachers and first responders as well. And donors can earn up to $800 your first month of donating plasma. So I like, uh, It's just like donating blood, just a little more time-consuming. And uh, if you mention that you heard about CSL Plasma on the radio, you'll get bonus cash as well. So go check them out, two locations in North Charleston. Uh, Fan Talk was out there yesterday. I was out there on Monday. It was good to see some of the uh, fine folks. Listeners come and donate plasma. It was perfect. Great to see. So get out there if you haven't already. It's Donor Appreciation Week. You can help others by donating plasma. They give you 100 bucks the first time you do it. And then also uh, you have a chance with, to get some giveaways as well this week for Donor Appreciation Week or just extra bucks. So not too bad. Hey, a uh, big win for the Braves yesterday. You know, now we're, things are slow. We may have to do uh, our updated power rankings for Major League Baseball tomorrow. See where the Braves slot into all that. So another tough loss for your Giants, Trent, last night on a walk-off. They, they almost had it. You know, Luke, I, I understand that it was a loss, but the boys showed resilience. That's what I need. You know, it's tough when I become a fan of a team and three days in I already despise a member of our pitching staff. <laughs> but outside of that, Luke, I, I'm not too worried about the San Francisco Giants. We're heading into the All-Star break here pretty soon. The boys will get some rest, be ready to go for a playoff push. You sound already like a real fan. Yeah, I know. You, oh, well. you already dislike uh, one of the players. Tyler Rogers. He's on my list. I've got I've oh. got a list, Luke, of uh, of people, and uh, he has made the list. There's no doubt about it. You dis- you're disliking the players and uh, already <laughs> dealing with the ups and downs. A walk-off loser on Monday, dramatic win on Tuesday, walk-off loser on Wednesday. Ah, oh, long season. And they're playing, you know, right now, yeah. so we'll have to see. That's right. Today's a big one because there's a big difference. I know it's only uh, June. And it's not like it's a playoff series. Who cares? You play every day. But just like mentally, there's a difference between winning three out of four in the series and splitting the series 2-2, especially when you win two of the first three if you're the Braves. Now, a lot of times, right, today, it's a day game. 
Uh, it's not a getaway day. The Braves are still home. But a lot of times, you know, day game, you've already taken two out of three. You know, maybe I haven't looked at the lineup, but maybe you rest a couple of guys on a game like this, especially with the Dodgers coming to town this weekend. But uh, just even mentally, especially what I've been saying for the Braves. Braves fans may not feel this way, but the Braves have beaten up on a lot of bad teams. So if you can now win a series instead of splitting a series with the Giants, that'd be good, especially in that wild card race. And don't forget, if they don't catch up to the Mets, um, Major League Baseball got rid of game 163. So when it comes to tiebreakers, it's head-to-head. So that also makes these games very important because let's say the Braves don't win the division and the Giants, I imagine, won't win their division. These are teams you're battling for in the wild card race just to get a spot and then a higher wild card, yada, yada, yada. So anyways, we'll see how the Braves do this uh, this afternoon. Now that you're a Giants fan, you got to watch The Fan, which was uh, a terrible movie from the 90s. With De Niro, though. Oh, with Bob? Yeah, and Wesley Snipes. <laughs> right, here and we go. And De Niro's a diehard San Francisco Giants fan. Well, I mean, we're in the same boat there. That's right. Well, <laughs> you don't want to be in the same boat as this guy. Wesley Snipes plays a character that's supposed to be like Barry Bonds. Mm. And it is so over-the-top and ridiculous. It's kind of entertaining. It's a terribly written movie. It's so ridiculous. There's a great scene with a good Rolling Stone song of De Niro flying down the highway. I love that. But overall, it's a pretty trashy movie. Well, you didn't sell me on it, Luke. <laughs> hey, dang. I'm just being honest. It's not a great movie. Aussie's best policy here on the Marmon Edition. That's right. But uh, <laughs> if you're looking for something to watch, you got nothing to do, uh, check out The Fan. It's a baseball movie about a crazed fan, De Niro, Giants fan. Snipes is supposed to be like Barry Bonds where, you know, he's the star, but he's not very pop. People kind of dislike him. A little arrogant. Anyways, you said uh, you, you said you should watch the you got to watch the fan now. Oh, yeah. wait, it's actually a terrible movie. Well, you, <laughs> one of my brothers loves like he prefers bad movies. Ah, what? Yeah, we, we share when I say we share. It's really I just I use his uh, voodoo account where you can rent and buy movies. and oh, everything. Sure. So I always check it. He's a big movie guy. He works from home. So, you know, he's got movies on all the time. And um, I always check it. And uh, yeah, he gets all these like, uh, you know, crummy uh, B film uh, horror, <laughs> horror film specifically he loves oh, a bad horror film some of them i'll watch because i got you know if i got nothing else to do or it intrigues me others i can't I, i'm not gonna waste my time but he loves like a good crummy movie it's so, so bad it's actually good to him wow so, that's a that's an interesting mindset right there from your brethren yeah uh, he's well and also i'll say this in his defense he's seen everything so <laughs> he's kind of run out of films to watch so he watches uh, just whatever's available even if it's kind of crummy so that's the thing with the fan like the fan I have, I have a soft spot in my heart for the movie The Fan. Part of it's because it's a baseball movie. Part of it's because it's got De Niro. Love De Niro. Uh, as I said, it's got my probably my favorite Rolling Stone song and a great scene. Wesley Snipes is solid. Love Wesley. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a pretty bad movie. But I love it. It's so bad, it's good. So anyways, that's quite the sales pitch. Go check it out, The Fan, from the 90s. I love 90s movies, too. Enough said. Hey, here's my one problem. We'll get into uh, back to the NBA draft, but my one problem with Major League Baseball. Trent, let me ask you. You've been following the Stanley Cup, so maybe you're interested in watching. They're playing tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. That could be the end of the series. Sure. Sports-wise, anything else on your radar that you want to sit down and watch this weekend? Uh, you know, I'm not a real big, uh, sorry to Jeremy Schilling, not a big Travelers uh, Championship guy. You know, I, I probably won't be uh, watching that. Maybe tune in here and there if the Stanley Cup wraps up. Not really. I mean, unless the Giants are playing this weekend, you know, it's going to be tough to uh, tough to watch anything. This might be a good, uh, you know, TV series type weekend, you know, to get knock out some episodes you've been waiting to watch. That's true, which is my problem with Major League Baseball. <laughs> you have the Yankees and the Astros starting a series tonight, two best records in the AL, two great teams over the last couple of years. Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. 
unless you're a Yankees or an Astros fan. They're not on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. They're not on Fox Saturday this week. No national games. Two best teams in the AL. We just had Shohei Otani uh, on Tuesday night drive in eight runs and then came back yesterday, pitched, and struck out nine. Does anybody know that happened? Right? Unless you're a big baseball fan following along all the teams. This is my problem. There's nothing else going on. We got the draft tonight. All right, that's kind of exciting. The Stanley Cup may wrap up tomorrow, and then you got nothing. This is Major League Baseball's time to shine. And you got a great series, Yankees-Astros, this weekend. Oh, also, Braves-Dodgers. Freddie Freeman returning to Atlanta. Two good teams in the NL. Now, if you're a Braves fan, you know. If you're a Dodgers fan, you know about this series. But I imagine it'll get very little attention this weekend. This is the problem Major League Baseball. And uh, Rob Manfred always blames the players. I wish Mike Trout was more outspoken. Why don't you do a better job of marketing your product? And I know, look, it's 162 games. It's a long year. It's hard to get up for every game in June. But this weekend, Yankees-Astros, that's exciting. Dodgers-Braves, these are good series, and there's nothing else going on outside of the Stanley Cup tomorrow, which may wrap up. And if it does, right, that's a short series. It's not like it's a Game 7 either. you got the Travelers Championship with half of the golf field. you got the draft tonight. This is when baseball should be taking over. Leading up to the All-Star break. I don't hear a peep about these uh, games this, this weekend. Hey, it's a throwback Thursday. So as we get ready for the NBA draft tonight, what are some classic um, some classic uh, uh, what-ifs in draft history? There's so many in the NBA. We could probably do this for all sports. Of course, you think back to Michael Jordan. right? What if Jordan truly was drafted first or second? Right, how does Sam Bowie go ahead of him? What if he went to the Portland Trailblazers? Now, I always defend the pick. Let's not use revisionist history. We can't look back at that draft through the lens of 2022. It was a different era back then. It was about the big guys. That was Olajuwon that went first, right? And then Bowie. So two big guys went first. That's what was winning back then. And people felt like, yeah, I mean, we know Jordan's good, but a guard doesn't make as big of an impact as a forward or a center. That was the case back then in the 80s. That's what it was. The sport was being dominated by bigs. So I, I understand the idea. It obviously didn't work out, and Jordan became the greatest player of all time. But back then, it was a little bit different. Plus, uh, Portland, right, they just had Bill Walton who got injured. Uh, you got to replace that big guy. Now, why would you draft another big guy who kind of fits the profile of Bill Walton? Because then Sam Bowie had injury concerns as well. Maybe that was the dumbest idea for Portland of it all. But I understand why Jordan would go third. But it's, of course, a classic what if, right? The history of the NBA would be different. What if Charlotte didn't trade Kobe Bryant? Trade him to the Lakers after drafting him. What if he actually stayed and played up the road? What would that be like? Trade him for Vladi Divox, right? What a horrendous trade, obviously. And I once uh, ran into Divox. I was with my father. We ran into him outside the Orlando airport. He was smoking a cigarette. And he was a nice guy. We got a photo because people have always said my dad looks like Vladi Divox. And the two of them stood together, took a photo. He was a really nice guy. But Vladi, right, traded for uh, Kobe? Brutal. Of course, you go back to the Kevin Durant, Greg Oden deal. Uh, what if Kevin Durant was drafted first instead of Greg Oden? Things would be pretty different. I would still say, again, to defend the thought process, there was concerns about Durant at the time, like Chet Holmgren tonight. And also, this was going back almost uh, almost 20 years, 15 to 20 years ago, where big guys still were a valuable, playing a valuable role, and Greg Oden had a great college career. What if the Atlanta Hawks kept Luka Doncic instead of Trey Young? Now, look, Trey Young's been pretty good. I think Luka Doncic is much better. And if I'm the Hawks, I'd rather have Luka. Speaking of the Hawks, they were one of the few teams that were in on Giannis when he was drafted almost a decade ago. And the Bucks took him 15th overall. The Hawks were picking 16th. And the Hawks 
Remember, at the time, Mike Budenholz was there. Now he's coaching Giannis in Milwaukee. They liked him a lot. They did their work. They felt like nobody else knew about this Giannis kid, or at least not that high in the draft. They thought, oh, yeah, we'll be able to get him at 16. No one thinks this guy should be drafted ahead of uh, the 16th pick. They don't realize how good he's going to be. The Hawks really liked him. And then Milwaukee, a pick before Atlanta at number 15, took him instead. If the Hawks thought there'd be some sort of threat, maybe they'd trade up. But they thought, oh, yeah, Giannis will be available at 16. And the pick before them, the Bucks took him, and as they say, the rest is history. We know about Steph Curry, right, who was drafted seventh. He should have been taken higher. It's easier to say now, but the what-if scenario would be the fact that Minnesota took Johnny Flynn. Right, look, if it was six centers went, behind, went ahead of Steph Curry, all right, you get it. But the fact that another guard was drafted right before Steph, so the Timberwolves were looking for a guard, and they said, yeah, Johnny Flynn will be better than Steph Curry. That's a big, you know, what if. What if they did take Curry? What if the Pistons drafted Dwayne Wade number two overall instead of Darko Milicic? That was terrible. Trent may not be a Miami Heat fan or a Dwayne Wade fan today if he was playing in Detroit. Should have went number two. And the last one I'll give you before a new revelation is uh, the 76ers. They drafted Larry Hughes, seventh overall. Dirk Nowitzki was then drafted eighth. Imagine if they took Dirk instead and you had Iverson and Dirk in Philadelphia. Then Iverson maybe would have actually won a championship. Or because of how often the ball was in his hands, I don't know, maybe Dirk wouldn't be the same player. But I bring all this up because not only is it a throwback Thursday on the day of the draft, but we also got a new story about Larry Bird. This story just came out yesterday. Nancy Leonard, who is now 90 years old, said she's telling this story for the first time. Her husband was the GM and the coach of the Pacers in 1978. She was the assistant GM. I don't know, something seems a little off. He's the GM. His wife's the assistant GM. Uh, something, uh, right? If I'm in, like, working at an organization, maybe if I'm a scout, maybe I'm a little ticked. Like, hey, how come I'm not the AGM? You give the job to your wife? But um, in 1978, the Pacers were uh, drafting, I believe it was third overall. They wanted to take Larry Bird because, of course, right? Not only was he going to be a great player, but keep him local. And back then, things were different where you could still go back to college. So Bird entered the draft, but he was going to go back to play his final year at Indiana State and then, you know, come to the NBA. And uh, Nancy, the quote was, it was a disaster. I will never forget one second of that draft, and this is something I haven't really talked publicly about. But her and her husband were pushing to draft Larry Bird in that year's draft. The board, the Pacers board, said no. As she described them, a bunch of guys who had never held a basketball in their hands in their lives. She also said her husband, the GM, right, was all over it, scouted Larry, knew more basketball than anybody in the league, as you would say about your significant other. But they wanted to take Larry Bird, uh, who ended up being drafted sixth by the Celtics. The Pacers were picking third. The Pacers instead took uh, Rick Roby from Kentucky, who did not pan out. The reason why the board was against Larry Bird and said, no, we can't take him, was because the Pacers were already in such a tough spot financially. They had to hold the telethon the year prior just to be making, uh, just to make ends meet. And if Bird was going to go back to college, number one, they'd have to come pony up the cash to be able to pay him. If you were watching Winning Time, you saw these, the, the situation where you know Magic Johnson uh, was uh, fighting for a big contract at the Lakers. Larry Bird, same idea. In fact, Bird got the contract before Magic. So they'd have to pony up the money to pay him, but also you'd be paying him for a year or have to hold on to him, wait a year, while he goes back to college before he comes and plays. And they say, we can't afford it. We can't wait around a year. We can't give him all this money after a year. We can't do it. The argument of the GM and his wife was, we're going to sell so many season tickets that it will pay for itself. And the board said, no, it's 
not a good financial decision, we're not going to take Larry Bird. And, of course, the rest is history. The Pacers wanted him at number three. The board said to their GM and coach, nope, you can't take Larry Bird. We can't afford him. Bird goes number six to the Celtics, and then we know what happens throughout the 80s. A story that really wasn't told until yesterday ahead of the draft tonight and the latest what-if in the NBA draft history on a throwback Thursday. Hey, coming up, what is going on with Roger Goodell and, like, the Supreme Court and this investigation with the NFL? We'll get to that next. The more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's Throwback Thursday. What's today? It's Thursday. Really? Feels like Tuesday. (laughs) Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up to both of you. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll get to the NFL stuff coming up with uh, the nonsense going on with Roger Goodell and the interrogation yesterday. Plus, DeAndre Hopkins spoke for the first time since his suspension and uh, revealed some interesting stuff about it. We'll get to that later on. But first, we have some big breaking news in the college football world to get to. We'll push off the NFL stuff. Because we got some big breaking news first. Arch Manning has made his decision. And he has announced his commitment to play for Texas. Arch Manning going to the Longhorns. Big news just announced uh, within the last 20 minutes. So for the time being, the recruitment seems to be done. Arch chooses Texas. Now it came down to Alabama, Texas, and Georgia. I made the case that if I was um, Arch Manning, just from a football perspective, I would choose Georgia personally. I I know about the other schools and what Alabama's done for quarterbacks. And, you know, Texas, you have Steve Sarkeesian there, who the Manning family, they, they enjoy. And he obviously just came from the SEC. But Georgia just showed you that they can win a uh, national championship with Stetson Bennett. And you don't have a Quinn Ewers at Texas, or Alabama's also bringing in a five-star as well. Now, look, if you're as good as Arch Manning, you probably don't fear competition. But at Alabama, uh, at Texas as well, right, big-time quarterbacks. Georgia, I want to come in, be the guy. You have a great defense to work with there. Uh, They just won a national championship with Stetson Bennett, so imagine what you could do. Uh, That's where I would have gone. My other concern with Texas is that once they enter the SEC, now who knows when that may be. By then, Arch may you know, already have a couple seasons under his belt. It may not be until 2025. Uh, it's down the road. Maybe you're not thinking that far ahead. But once they do join the SEC, you're going to have a Big 12 team in the SEC. I think it takes, it's going to take a few years to adjust. So for Arch's sake, he may be, be uh, playing behind like a Big 12 line against an SEC defensive line, putting you at a mismatch in the trenches every week. And that doesn't seem great for a quarterback. But Arch Manning chooses Texas. You go play for Steve Sarkeesian, who's one of the best offensive minds in the country. You go play, uh, in the meantime, for a school that is in the Big 12, so it is a, an easier path for now than, say, the SEC. And um, Sarkeesian, 
has a good relationship with the Manning family. They've, they've always liked him. That's why Texas has always been on the list. He visited Texas like four or five times and makes a decision. So him and Quinn Ewers will be in that quarterback room. That's going to be fascinating. You know, yesterday I gave you the transfer quarterbacks with the most pressure on them, and Quinn was number two on my list. I think the pressure just went up because if you don't play well this year, well, here comes Arch Manning a year from now who's supposed to be, you know, God's gift to quarterbacks here, to, to teams. And so uh, that only ramps up the pressure for Ewers as well. That'll be an interesting quarterback room to track at Texas. Only three quarterbacks have ever received a perfect 1,000 rating on 24-7 sports. All three have committed to uh, or have wound up at Texas. Vince Young, Quinn Ewers, now Arch Manning as well. So theoretically, on paper, Texas may have the two best recruited quarterbacks in their locker room next year in the country. Very fascinating. Can we say Texas is back? You get Quinn Ewers and now Arch Manning next year? Well, it's the first player. Uh, Arch Manning across all recruiting sites is the number one overall high school player. First time Texas has gotten the uh, number one overall player since 2006. Wow. Does not go to the SEC. Are you surprised in the end by the Texas uh, decision for Arch Manning? Yeah, a little bit. I, I, you know, I thought with Quinn Ewers being there and having, I think, about three to four years of eligibility, I thought that was going to, you know, skew his uh, mindset on Texas. Alabama and Georgia are two obviously incredible options. You know you're probably going to win a national championship if you went to Alabama. I thought it was going to be Alabama from the start, but now, I mean, I guess he wants to create his own legacy uh, over there at Texas. Good for him. I mean, they got all the talent in the world. They just need, they've needed that quarterback that can put them over the edge. So is that going to be Quinn Ewers? And then are they going to bench him in one year? Or is Arch Manning going to be sitting on the bench? I, I don't see that happening. Like Texas only went five and seven last year, but you know Steve Sarkeesian comes in, give him a little time, and now he brings in, you know, back to back number one quarterbacks here, Quinn Ewers and Arch Manning. It's it's going to be uh, really interesting to see. That'll be fun to watch. With an offensive coach, Sarkeesian knows what he's doing. And for the meantime, this year for Quinn Ewers, again, the best running back in the country before Arch Manning arrives. Yeah, look, when you're a great quarterback, you're great for a reason. You probably don't fear competition. You're probably very confident in yourself. But if I'm Arch Manning, like I want, I want it to be, I don't know, I feel like I want it to be my show. I don't want to have to compete or have to worry about this other guy. I want to come in and be the guy. I don't want to be one of the guys. And so Alabama, Texas, he would come in and be just – one of the guys, for lack of a better term, because you're going to have other star quarterbacks there. That was part of the appeal for me to go to Georgia. Georgia would probably have the best defense of side of the football, and you're going to come in and be the guy. Get to replace Stetson Bennett. All right, don't have to worry about Quinn Ewers, the other number one quarterback in that same quarterback room. But he's off to Texas. Look, maybe he wanted to do his own thing as well. We heard so much about the SEC. We know about the Manning family and their history with the SEC. Maybe he wanted to go off to Texas. I mean, eventually they'll be in the SEC, but in the meantime... Have a good relationship with Sarkeesian. He's an offensive coach. Saban is not. Kirby Smart is not. And uh, go play there in the Big 12 instead of the shadow of your family and in a conference that is more offensive um, than the SEC. Although last year there were, there were some pretty good defenses in the Big 12. Uh, but maybe that's the path for Arch. So there's a the big breaking news. Arch Manning makes his decision, at least for the time being. These decisions can always change. And uh, he's chosen Texas for now. Big get for Steve Sarkeesian. Now I just can't wait to see this kid play at the college level especially for a big school like Texas. Hey, when we come back, speaking of big-time quarterbacks, is Trevor Lawrence getting scammed? Tomorrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
It's the Morrow Midday Show. Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Did Trevor Lawrence make a bad financial decision? Uh, somebody put out, I don't know where this list first came from, but I saw it making the rounds online. Sports stars who have suffered the biggest salary losses because a lot of uh, sports stars have taken their bonuses in uh, some sort of cryptocurrency. And if you're in the crypto game, I'm not. I'm not really all that familiar with it, but I know it's not doing so well, certainly compared to where it was uh, in the past. I think it's down 57% year to date, something along those lines. So Trevor Lawrence, there were reports that his $24 million signing bonus he took in cryptocurrency, in Bitcoin. And that $24 million would now be worth $9 million, costing Trevor Lawrence $15 million. Now, Trevor, because this was making the rounds, responded on Twitter and said, Did you all confuse my FTX official signing bonus with my NFL one? Carry on, dot, dot, dot. So Trevor's saying it was not his NFL signing bonus, but instead the bonus he got from uh, a sponsor instead that he took in cryptocurrency. We'll circle back to this coming up in hour two because uh, it's an interesting list of athletes who have lost a lot of money so far in cryptocurrency. Trevor Lawrence may not be one of them. Hour two coming up next. It's the More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, which teams in the NFL? We'll take a step back or a step forward this year. And who right now is overvalued and undervalued in the league? We'll get to that coming up here on the Morrow Midday Show. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch you on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Got the NBA drafts going on tonight. We'll continue to get ready for that. And the breaking news this afternoon of Arch Manning committing to Texas. That's very interesting. We talk so much about, you know, is Texas back? Is this the year? I'll tell you what, when you bring in Quinn Ewers and then Arch Manning, the two of the top quarterbacks in the country, makes Texas suddenly very intriguing with Steve Sarkeesian leading the show there. Especially this year. Big 12's wide open. We'll see how Quinn Ewers does. They got a really good running back. Offensive line solid. And then Arch Manning's going to come in after this year, and we'll see what happens there from the quarterback room. Hey, uh, you can always get in touch with the show. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Leave a comment for the show. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. You can text the show, 843-608-1734. Or join the conversation on the phones as well, 843-721-9500. Who in the NFL is set to take a step forward and take a step back this year? I do this every offseason. 
and it's a little nerdy, and it gets bogged down in the numbers a little bit, and maybe it's not the easiest thing to follow along on the radio, but it usually pans out. I always say that in football, in basketball, right, point differential is the most important statistic. Baseball, run differential. Same idea, just a different name. It's the most important stat to look at. I think it's the most telling. And in the NFL season, you can always look at teams where their point differential for one reason or another, negative or positive, does not match up with their win-loss record. There's another stat that goes along with point differential that is your expected win or loss. Based off of the amount of points you have scored and the amount of points you have allowed, what should your record be? And so you take what that record should be, and you compare it to what the record actually is, and you can come up with, an idea of if that team overachieved, underachieved, or performed just as they were supposed to. And when you look at teams that overachieve one season, the history tells you they're going to regress to the mean the next. They're going to take a step back the following year. Vice versa. If a team underachieved one year, they had some bad luck, they lost some close games, they'll be better the following year. So we do this every offseason, and it's a great indicator of trying to predict future outcomes in the NFL. To back up what I'm saying, I went back and looked at last year's, and I gave the 12 teams last offseason. Last year I said the Bills, the Browns, the Chiefs, and the Seahawks would take a step back in 2022. And they all lost, or I should say, to rephrase it, they all won at least two fewer games in uh, 2021. Some of them took bigger steps back. The Seahawks were a disappointment. The Browns were under 500 after going to the playoffs. Others took a modest step back. The Bills were still really good, but they went from 13 wins to 11 in a longer season. Right? Like The Chiefs were really good, but they went from 14 wins to what they have last year, 11 or 12. Every team had their win total drop by at least two. The two teams that I was wrong about, I said the Titans would take a step back. Statistically, they overachieved in 2020. And yet last year they won the same number of games, 12 wins followed by 12 wins. I said the Packers would take a step back. Statistically, they overachieved in 2020. Same deal. They won 13 games and then followed up with 13 more wins last year. On the flip side, teams that I thought would take a step forward last year, the Jaguars, Eagles, Falcons, 49ers all did. Again, some of them took bigger steps than others. The Jaguars went from one win to three. Not a huge step, but you know they did increase their win total they, they, by three times. They, they tripled their wins last year. All these teams increased their win total by at least two this past season. The Eagles became a playoff team. The Falcons went from, I think it was four wins, to seven last year. They were a bit of a surprise. And the 49ers went from six wins to the NFC title game. So two of these teams jumped up to make the playoffs. The other two made a pretty big increase more than doubling their wins last year. The two teams I was wrong about, I thought the Texans would take a step forward. They won the same number of games last year as the year prior. And I thought the Panthers were due for a step forward. They took, uh, they won the same number of games as they did last year. So, in total, I gave you 12 teams a year ago. And I said six are going to take a step forward, six are going to take a step back. Through this model or this exercise, we were eight for 12. And the four teams that I was wrong on, just won the same amount of games the year prior. So they didn't do anything. They didn't take a step back or step, step step forward. They were exactly the same. And I could go back year by year by year, but I'm not going to bore you with all the past results. Point is, it is a productive metric to look at when predicting 
future outcomes. And it's point differential, which leads to then expected win-loss. So, with all that said, when we look at last year, the teams that overachieved and underachieved, these are the teams that overachieved a year ago and therefore should win fewer games this season. Five of them. The Raiders, the Packers, the Steelers, the Titans, and the Falcons. The Raiders and the Packers statistically won three more games a year ago than they should have. The Steelers, Titans, Falcons won two more games. If you watched the Falcons this past year, you would see that they were the worst seven-win team we've had in a long time. They had the worst point differential, I think, in the league, and still were almost 500. It's remarkable how they pulled that off. The Titans and the Packers always seem to overachieve. The Titans, in part, because they do it different from everybody else. The Packers, because outside of Aaron Rodgers, they never have a ton of talent, but the quarterback is so good that he makes up the difference. And the Raiders last year were such a surprise with everything that they went through with the coaching change and the way the team played at times that they somehow made the playoffs. Statistically, they overachieved by three wins last year. They should have had three fewer victories last season. So I expect those teams to take a step back. Raiders, Packers, Steelers, Titans, Falcons. Again, it may only be by two. The Packers may win 11 games instead of 13. The Titans may win 10 games instead of 12. But history tells us these are teams that will win fewer games this year, typically by at least two. They overachieved. They got three extra wins last year. Maybe they'll have three fewer wins this year. It usually comes around full circle. It catches up to you. On the flip side, the teams that should be better this year, that underachieved a year ago, that last year should have had better records than they actually did. A couple of surprises on this list to me, at least. There's six of them. The Bills, the Patriots, the Colts, the Broncos, the Lions, and the Seahawks. These were teams that statistically underachieved a year ago and should have better records this year. The Bills, I could certainly see. They're Super Bowl favorites. The Patriots, I'm interested to see. Because I almost had a feeling like they already hit their ceiling last year with this version of the team. And they added no playmakers on offense. They're going to have defensive coaches running the offense. I have concerns about New England this year. But the metrics tell me that they should have more wins this year than they had last year. Maybe Mac Jones takes a big step forward in year two. The Colts, I could see being better this year than last year. The Broncos should certainly better be better this year than last year. I think the Lions will be better this year compared to last year. They won three games last year, but they were so close in so many others. And I liked uh, their offseason, their draft. Uh, I think they had some interesting playmakers on offense. They won three games last year. I could see them maybe winning six this year. I think they'll be better than the Bears in that division. But the other surprise to me is the Seahawks. They go from Russell Wilson to Drew Locke. I don't think Seattle will be better this year, but the numbers tell me they should actually win more games this year than they did last year. Now, granted, last year Russell was injured for a large portion of the season. They finished the last. They were horrendous. You can't get much worse than Seattle a year ago, but that's a big drop-off at the most important position. You go from Russell Wilson, a Hall of Fame quarterback, to Geno Smith and Drew Locke, who are fringe NFL quarterbacks. But the an- analytics tell me uh, the Seahawks should have more wins this year than a year ago. So if you're a fan of one of these teams, it's either good news or bad news. The analytics suggest that the Raiders, Packers, Steelers, Titans, Falcons will win fewer games this year than last year. I could certainly see it for Atlanta. Same with the Steelers, right? You lose Ben Roethlisberger, Mitch Trubisky, I could see the Steelers taking a step back. The Raiders last year had the sense of almost a fluky year. I think Rick Bisaccia was the first interim coach to lead the team to the playoffs ever. Uh, I know um, 
Bruce Arians was close with the Colts, but Chuck Pagano came back. It was mostly the job done by Bruce Arians. So if you want to say Arians, then Versace becomes the second interim coach to ever do it. Uh, so the Raiders, I could see taking a step back, even with Josh McDaniels and Devontae Adams. It's just such a tough division. And on the flip side, the teams that should be better this year than they were a year ago win more games this year. Bills, Patriots, Colts, Broncos, Lions, Seahawks. Broncos seem obvious. I do like the Colts this year. The Bills, people think they will be better this year. They're Super Bowl favorites. little surprise, though, by the Seahawks and the Patriots. I don't know how much better they'll be this year than a year ago. We'll see if uh, this study pans out again this year. Last year, it was 8 for 12, right? So we had a 67% hit rate. And the four that I was wrong on, they won equally as many games as the year prior. So you can call it a push, if you will. None of the teams I was actually incorrect on, truly, where I said they would win fewer games and they won more. So we'll see how it pans out for these 11 teams throughout this football season. Now, on the show Monday or Tuesday, like a lot of times, I will come up with a plan for a show. And then we get uh, talking about uh, fashion or food or movies or who knows what, or we get Arch Manning breaking news, and some things get lost in the shuffle. So we were talking about it, I think, on Tuesday, and then I meant to bring it up yesterday. We never got to it yesterday. We had to bump it from the show. It's like when you watch your local newscast. Uh, if they ever have breaking news or go long, they always cut sports at the end. And no sports tonight, right, because they went long on something else. So yesterday we had to cut this idea. But it's the team that right now is overvalued in the NFL and undervalued. Now, Trent, I asked you about this the other day, and you were, you know, pimping the Falcons pretty good in conversation on, I think that was Tuesday, earlier this week. So as we sit here in the offseason, if I were to ask you, who do you think is a team right now in the NFL that is being overvalued, you don't think they're going to be as good as most believe this year? And on the flip side, maybe it's the Falcons. Who do you think is a team that right now is not getting enough attention they're being undervalued right now. I would say the uh, overvalued team, Luke, is the uh, San Francisco 49ers Ooh. right now. I, I don't trust Trey Lance. Look, I think he can be a great quarterback. He has all the intangibles that a quarterback in the modern-day NFL needs. Obviously, everybody compares him to Patrick Mahomes. Let's take a step back, make sure we're not making those comparisons, Dan Orlovsky. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I would probably say just because of Trey Lance and the new quarterback experiment, if you will, I would say the San Francisco 49ers are being a little bit overvalued as far as undervalued goes i would say the falcons as of right now but i'm not going to do that luke i'm not going to do that this might shock you a little bit i'm gonna say the pittsburgh steelers i think the pittsburgh steelers are being undervalued in a lot of people's eyes let's not forget mike tomlin is still the head coach has never had a losing season i don't mind mitchell trubisky at the quarterback position i don't think kenny pickett is going to start right away for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Najee Harris is an absolute beast. They have an improved, obviously, offensive line, and the defense is stout. So right now, I believe uh, in the AFC North, I don't think they'll win the AFC North, but I do think they'll go over 500, potentially make some uh, little playoff run. So I think the uh, Steelers right now are being a little undervalued. It's just my trust in Mike Tomlin yeah. is, uh, is over the top. I think he can take any team necessary and make them a winner. Yeah, it's fair to, to bank on Tomlin. By the way, did you see those clips from Tomlin? He did like a podcast. Oh, he did this great. Week? He did great. He's the best. I, I love him so much. Like the way that because we really never see him in that light. It's always usually coach speak and kind of, you know, very serious. Sometimes yeah. he'll play around with the media, but he's awesome. All the quotes that come out and he was on the uh, pivot podcast, I believe, with yes, uh, Ryan Clark, right. yep. Fred Taylor and Channing Crowder. 
And uh, he was awesome. I watched about 30 minutes of the interview. It was absolutely incredible. He's the best soundbite in the league. Yeah. I love his press conferences. And he has a great way of describing things. He has these expressions, these great expressions that you don't really hear. Like Jerry Jones has a bunch of expressions, but they just sound like nonsense. He'll say things like, what, what does that even mean? Mike Tomlin has so many great sayings at the podium that you never hear from anybody else. And you think, wow, that was really – I like that. That's good. I want to steal that one. And he said something – he compared the Steelers to uh, – so uh, McDonald's? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. no matter what McDonald's you go to, you know what the number one is, which I assume <laughs> is a Big Mac. I don't know what the number one is on the menu. But I think his point being like uh, the Steelers, regardless if it's Ben Roethlisberger or it's Kenny Pickett, like you know what you're going to get with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think that was his. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, tough defense, you right. know, and everything else will uh, will fall into place if you. Yeah, he was he was absolutely phenomenal on there. I I always I will always trust him. Yeah, yeah. No, he's deserved it. He's earned it. Um. I like that one, though. I'm going to steal that. No matter what McDonald's you go to, you know what number one's going to be on the menu. right? You know what you're getting. You know what to expect. You hear uh, him talking about Antonio Brown a I little did. bit. Yes, yeah. That's it, the other clip they, I saw. They asked him if he was going to come back to uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Antonio Brown, he said, y'all know that's not going to happen. But then <laughs> after he said that, he praised him, obviously, with the nine years that they were there. Yeah, it's one of those things like you love him, but you got to keep him at his arm's length. Yeah. You may have somebody in your life, too, that uh, maybe they're like a family member. You love them, but just because of things going on, like they just can't, you don't want them around the family. Um, you got to keep them at a little bit of a distance. You can appreciate Antonio Brown and what he did, but it doesn't mean you're going to bring him back into that locker room, especially with a young quarterback. Uh, if I were to give a team, I do like your Niners pick, especially if they move on from Jimmy Garoppolo and go with Trey Lance. And if we look at the Niners, They've had those two years where they made it to the NFC title game. Otherwise, they've had nothing but losing seasons. And Shanahan has not had back-to-back winning seasons yet. So I like the Niners' idea. To be different, and this was the other team I was thinking of anyways, I will say the Dallas Cowboys as well. Uh, I do think some people have come down on the Cowboys compared to last year because of how things ended. But they're still the favorite in their division. And they won 12 games a year ago. Um I think the over-under is like 10.5. I would take the under in the Cowboys. I think the Cowboys take a step back. I thought they had one of the worst off-seasons in the league this year. I don't think they'll have as talented of a roster this season. Last year, I'm not going to call it fluky. It's hard to win 12 games, but we saw what happened when they got to the playoffs. I don't trust Mike McCarthy. I think he's on the hot seat. And Dallas, the way they looked the second half of last season was much different than the way they looked the first half. They, they really were not the same team the longer the season went on. And they also went undefeated in the division last year. I think all three of those other teams in the NFC East are going to be better. Uh, the Eagles finished in uh, second place last year. They ended up going 9-8 and eight with the one of the easiest schedules in the league. Philadelphia, now you have A.J. Brown and Jalen Hurts in his second year. I'd like to think they'll be improved, or second year as a starter. Washington, you go from Taylor Heineke to Carson Wentz. May not be a big upgrade, but I do think it's an upgrade. And the Giants... It's just year one, so maybe they're not ready to compete yet. But I do like Brian Dable coming in and trying to work with Daniel Jones. And I'm not telling you the Giants are going to have a winning record, but they only won four games last year. I do think they'll be better this year. Not hard to be much better than four wins. But point being, I think that division is going to be better. McCarthy, right? we had the Sean Payton rumors. The way the season ended was horrendous in the playoffs, how they lost that game. They didn't seem well prepared. They didn't know what they were doing at the end of the game. They lose a home playoff game with you know, time to get ready for it. I think the Cowboys, they're a hard team to trust. I think they'll be uh, worse than people anticipate. I don't think they win that division. We have not had a repeat winner in the NFC East in 20 years. The team that I think is undervalued. I may have to be a homer. And, look, they won eight games a year ago, so maybe this isn't a big step forward. But I feel like nobody is paying any attention to the Minnesota Vikings. Oh, here we go. Here we go. You bring in Kevin (laughs) O'Connell, offensive coach. Working with Kirk Cousins and those weapons on offense, 
I saw what Zach Taylor just did. I've seen Sean McVay's success. O'Connell's coming from that coaching tree. He was McVay's offensive coordinator. I'm excited about what this offense can do. And on the flip side, I'll say this. The Vikings lost, I think it was the most one-possession games last year or the most games when they had a lead or pretty close to it. They were high up on that list. That's something that I think bounces back. You don't lose close games year after year after year. Right? You start winning some of those games the next year just simply by having some of the breaks go your way. The other thing, they had a historically bad defense in the final four minutes of the first half and the second half. Historically bad. Worst ever in allowing points at the end of halves. They blew so many games in the fourth quarter with a defensive coach. I just think you can't be that bad defensively this year. They made some good moves this offseason. I know they've been talking about adding Sue on that defensive line if he doesn't go to uh, the Raiders. Uh, I think the defense is better this year or will be better this year than last year. It's not going to be great, but last year it was one of the worst defenses in the league. And they still won eight games, by the way. I mean, they were in a train wreck. So I think the Vikings could be a surprise. I'm not going to pick them to win the division, but I could see Minnesota being a wild-card team, winning double-digit games, making it very tough on Green Bay, and uh, being a surprise in the NFC. The NFC is wide open this year. I don't know if people are talking about my Minnesota Vikings. I hype them up every year, and then I'm largely disappointed. But this year, maybe they're a team that's being underhyped. To go a little bolder, I'll also say if I had to pick another team, it's hard to pick a team that's underhyped because we feel like we know what the bad teams are. Go division by division. You could probably come up with the last-place team a lot easier than the first-place team. In the AFC East, it feels safe that the Jets will be in last place again. In the AFC North, this one's a little trickier, but because it's Trubisky and Kenny Pickett, I know we were just praising the Steelers. I feel like most people would say the Steelers are the last-place team this year in that tough division. In the AFC South, it seems clear it's either the Texans or the Jaguars. In the AFC West, again, tough division. I don't know. I think most people would probably pick the Raiders. And then in the NFC, you feel like it's the Lions or the Bears. Right, the Panthers or the Falcons in the South, the Seahawks in the West, and in the NFC East, probably still the Giants. But to pick a winner in these divisions, a little bit tougher. It's harder to come up with a, a bad team that's going to surprise you. It happens every year, but we usually never see it coming in the NFL. So if I had to uh, be a little more bold than the 8-9 and nine Minnesota Vikings, maybe I would go with the Jacksonville Jaguars as undervalued. Again, not telling you they're going to go win the division. But they were 3-14 and 14 last year with Urban Meyer, who got run out of town. Uh, I think they made some um, improvements in the offseason, and I think the biggest improvement is just simply Doug Peterson. And Plus, you have Trevor Lawrence year one to year two. And you have a, a bad division. I think the Titans will take a step back this year. I'm intrigued by the Colts. You don't have to worry about the Texans. So maybe the Jaguars are a team that, I'm not telling you, they're going to go win 12 games this year, but I don't think anybody's talking about them. And they could be better than the disaster they were a year ago, maybe undervalued. When we say undervalued, again, we're not picking Super Bowl champions here. We're just saying teams that are going to be better than people think right now. I don't think many people have high expectations for the Jags. Uh, maybe they double their wins this year at Trevor Lawrence. I don't know. You can always join the conversation, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. Let's go to the phones. Todd is with us. Todd, what's going on? How are you? Hey, what's up, dude? Uh, I'll switch gears for a second here while i got some time. Uh, talk about baseball. Sure. I am a uh, big-time Yankees fan, and uh, this year is uh, pretty fun to watch right now. But uh, I'm a little nervous, uh, to be honest with you, that the Yankees aren't going to give Judge what he wants uh, before he wants it. Um, I'm just curious to see if you think that's foolish of them not to maybe offer him a deal before uh, offseason. 
Yeah, I would say so. Now, a lot of players don't want to negotiate during the season, so I don't know where Judge is on that. Maybe his deadline was opening day. But I know they. For, for in the meantime, they still have this arbitration deal going on where they're haggling right now over $4 million, which seems crazy, especially before a free agent negotiation coming up in the offseason. And uh, the Yankees, look, they gambled, and uh, they're going to pay for it because they did not want to give Judge a long-term contract before his free agent year uh, or his contract year this year, and he's having an incredible season and is on the way right now to an MVP award, and the price is only going up, and it's going to make it harder for the Yankees to keep him or at least more expensive. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but, yeah, looking back, uh, the Yankees really botched this thing by not getting a player like Judge under some sort of long-term commitment before he hits uh, the market here in a few months. Do you think uh, – I saw a report yesterday of uh... – forget who it was, one of the ESPN guys, probably Buster, um, about seven teams he could go to. I mean, it just doesn't seem like he is the kind of guy, like they built a judge's chambers in the stadium. I, I feel like this is, like he's not going anywhere. He doesn't want to go anywhere. Like, why, what's the hesitation on paying it? I just don't understand. Yeah, I'm with you. Like I said, the same thing about Freddie Freeman with the Braves. There are certain players you just can't let walk away. They they got to spend their entire. They, they are the organization. They got to spend their entire career with the team. You can't let them leave, and so it'd be a uh, it'd be a, a nightmare for the Yankees if Judge does leave. Now you have the Mets across town who uh, have the richest owner who's throwing money around. Judge is a California guy. You have the Dodgers and even the Angels have been spending a lot of money. Um, if he wants to go back towards home. And then uh, if the Red Sox, they've, they've been a little more um, conservative in recent years. But, you know, I think most teams would be interested in Aaron Judge when he becomes a free agent. So it could be an interesting uh, fight. With, with all, if nothing else, these other teams are just going to drive up the price even more. But, but Judge will have a lot of options if and when he becomes a free agent this offseason. Uh, you mentioned the Red Sox. If, they, if he goes. Oh, we lost Todd. Appreciate it, Todd. I know what he was going to say, though. If he goes to the Red Sox, right, that would be a hard pill to swallow if you're the Yankees. Bernie Williams, remember, uh, was going to leave the Yankees for the Red Sox. Here's the thing with the Yankees as they currently operate. Under George Steinbrenner, he was a lot more open with the wallet. His kids, not so much. Uh, I'll give you two quick examples. Bernie Williams, going back about 20 years ago, was going to go to the Red Sox. They offered him more money. And he was about to sign, and then he gave the Yankees a call and told them, like, hey, this is your last chance, otherwise I'm going to Boston. And Steinbrenner ponied up to keep Bernie with the Yankees, and he uh, kind of burned, no pun intended, he burned the Red Sox uh, at the final minute. That was going back about 20 years ago. And part of it was Steinbrenner, the idea that we can't let Bernie Williams go play for somebody else, especially the Red Sox. He's got to be a Yankee for his career. But then more recently... Robinson Cano is the more recent example where Cano did the same thing. The Mariners offered more money. He called the Yankees, gave them the last chance, and said, hey, here's what the Mariners are giving me. Can you match it? I'll stay here. And the Yankees said, no, we don't want to go above what we think we should pay you. We're not going to go any higher than that. And in hindsight, the Yankees were right on that call. But the Steinbrenner kids have operated, or maybe it's more Brian Cashman now that uh, he doesn't have George Steinbrenner pulling the strings as often. But... The Yankees now have since operated in recent years of kind of like, here's our price, and we're not going to budge off of this. This is what we think you're worth. We're not going to break the bank for you like George Steinbrenner used to do where he was never afraid to spend money or overpay. That's why the Yankees would sometimes get themselves into some bad deals, like an A-Rod. It's like, whatever. Right? Let's just get this guy in here. All right? we'll, we'll pay the luxury tax. We'll throw money. Now, look, the Yankees still have a high 
Uh, they still ha- they're still top three in payroll in baseball. So don't get me, I'm not telling you they suddenly became the Royals, but just the way they operate, they're uh, a little more stubborn in the sense of now this is what we think we should pay you. We're, we're just not going to go above that anymore. Uh, you know they have their budgets that they stick to. For Aaron Judge, I will say this about Judge. Look, we've seen a lot of guys perform big time in contract years, and that's what Judge is doing. He deserves credit. He um, bet on himself, and he is killing it right now. He's playing like the best player in baseball. But Judge, if you compare this year to most of his others, right, he he just hasn't been this guy. This is what the Yankees thought they were getting year after year. And now part of it's been because of injuries. Judge has never really played a full season. But, you know, like last year he had uh, he had a good year, no doubt. But he had 39 homers last year. He already has 27 now. We're not even into July. Right? He's hitting over 300 right now for what would be the first time in his career. So I'm not telling you Judge was a bad player before, but he hasn't really played like this. His first full year in the league, he hit 52 home runs. After that, he only exceeded 27 once. He already has 27 this year. So that's the other part of it is that you know, the Yankees looked at Judge and maybe wanted to see more out of him this year or weren't willing to break, break, the, um, break the bank for him yet. They didn't think he was worth maybe what he was requesting. But now he goes out and he plays like this. He's going to get all the money in the world. Judge is going to get a cra- – someone's going to throw a lot of money. Also, the other thing is he's going to be 31 next year. So if you're talking like some sort of seven, eight-year deal, you know, pay him until he's almost 40, he's already into his 30s uh, before he's finally hitting the market, which is the thing the players have been fighting against in Major League Baseball. They want to be able to be free agents earlier in their careers. So that's another aspect is, you know, he will be, he's already in his 30s now, so it's not like he's uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. He's 24 years old, and you want this guy for 12 more years. But, yeah, hindsight being 2020, the Yankees look really dumb right now for not getting this done sooner. It's uh, either going to cost them a lot more money or cost them a talented player if he leaves this offseason. And you know the Mets will love to steal him from their crosstown rivals with all the money Steve Cohen is paying. When we come back, um, we have to get to uh, maybe the oddest Jerry Seinfeld joke ever, and I'll explain why. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, we were talking a lot about the Live Golf Tour yesterday. Pete reached out to, to the show. You can always do so. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Leave a comment for the show there. And uh, you can always uh, tweet the show as well, at Morrow Middays. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Join the uh, conversation on the phones as well. 843-721-9500. But Pete said, one additional follow-up comment on Liv. At this point, almost all the golfers that have switched are past their prime. They've been on the tour for 15-plus years, either breaking down from injuries, married, want more time with family, are no longer winning, still rely on name. They see guaranteed money, three days play, no cut, more time with new wife, family, kids. The PGA will adjust, but my thought... These has-beens more or less will lose their relevance. Things may change, but in the end, if money is all you have to offer, it will get old for people who already have more 
than they can spend. Media talking heads pushing this more than the players and the fans. Don't think it will last in relevance. Only help create some changes in the PGA for the better. We will see. Yeah, I agree with uh, maybe all those points made. The players that you are seeing go over to the Live Golf Tour are either older, like a Phil Mickelson. He's not going to do much winning, so go get that payday. Or guys who are younger that um, have not gotten the job done. That's why in re- the recent developments of like a Brooks Kepka and a Bryson DeChambeau are pretty big. Because those are two of the bigger names in golf, and they're still younger. And, you know, and certainly Brooks has won some big events. Now, of course, these guys can still play in the majors. But originally, the first group of guys we saw was either like a Mickelson. Even Dustin Johnson said, oh, I'm not going to play golf for my whole life. It seems like he's uh, towards maybe the end of his career. He just got married. Why not spend as much time as he can with uh, Gretzky's daughter? And um, and then the guys that maybe you weren't all that familiar with, who instead of trying to break through on the tour, yeah, just go take the easy the p- easy paycheck. But I agree in regards to guaranteed money, three days, no cut, right? fewer events. They're doing eight events a year right now. Why I have, I don't know if I would say defend the golfers that have gone to the golf tour, but I certainly understand it. A lot of people will be on their high horse or grandstanding and talk about blood money and how these guys are terrible. And I don't necessarily disagree about the bad source of uh, of the money, where it's coming from, or why or why you shouldn't do business with Saudi Arabia. Absolutely, you know they were very much responsible for what happened on September 11th, and uh, that hits close to home. And that was one of the worst days we've had uh, in this country. So I get it, but I also understand where the golfers are coming from in the sense that. If you or I, any of us, had life-changing money dropped on the table, even if it's coming from an ugly place, it would be hard to turn that down when they're offering you guaranteed 200 mil for less work, more money, guaranteed money, more time off, life-changing money. I understand why these players would take those paychecks. Absolutely. So I understand it. Right? I see both sides. Yes, it is blood money. They're bad people to get into business with. I understand. But you're also asking a lot for these guys to turn down $200 million guaranteed to work less and get more time off. We would all love to be in that situation. In regards to the other points raised, um, the PGA will adjust for the better. That's the hope. That's the case I've been making for the last week or two. Competition is good. You can make an argument that the ABA led to the saving of the NBA. The AFL led to the Super Bowl. And thank goodness for that. Right, the ABA led to the three-point line in the NBA, led to the All-Star weekend that you enjoy in the NBA nowadays. The NFL, the NFL stole things from the XFL that helped improve the sport. So I do agree that it could be, if they know what they're doing, the PGA Tour knows what they're doing, and they announced some changes this week, but you know, competition, it uh, keeps you honest. Otherwise, when you're running a monopoly, you could do whatever you want. I think things got a little stale or a little old, and now you're forced to make some changes. And as long as you make the right ones, as long as you know what you're doing, you have good leaders in place, it could be a good thing for you. In regards to the Live Golf Tour, the other part of the comment was that, um, you know, they're relying just on names, a bunch of has-beens that are going to lose relevance. Yeah, I don't know how popular the Live Golf Tour will actually be, how many people are going to tune in and watch them. I don't know how much the Saudis really care. They have money to blow. They're not in the business of making money right now based off the Live Golf Tour or Golf Series. The biggest concern, though, is just simply taking the talent away. So for those going to the Travelers Championship this weekend, and I have plenty of friends that will be there this weekend, right now suddenly the field's just not as good. That's the biggest blow to the PGA Tour. It's not necessarily taking the audience away because they want to go watch Live Golf instead. 
but it's just more about watering down the PGA Tour product, where now you're suddenly not as interested in these other events because you don't have the big names. You don't have the guys that you would tune in to see. That's the bigger concern to me. It's not that suddenly everyone's going to leave the PGA Tour and become live golf fans. It's just that golf is suffering. Every- now you're going to have two watered-down tours. Like, well, this is kind of lame. It's going to be like boxing, where we always dream of these matchups in boxing, but you never actually get them. Similar. You see this guy golfing over here, this guy over here. Like, man, I wish, outside of the majors, man, I wish I could see these guys can compete on a Sunday all year long. And you dream of those possibilities, but you never actually get them. And I'd also say this. The last point I'll make for the time being on the Live Golf Tour. Uh, there was a good interview yesterday, if you're a, a subscriber. Chris Mad Dog Russo, who we love around here, went on the Howard Stern show yesterday. And they were talking about first take. And I loved Howard Stern is not into sports whatsoever. He had no idea what first take was. He never heard of Stephen A. Smith. It clearly hurt the ego of Mad Dog Russo, who wanted to promote his appearances. He was talking about ratings are up 22% when he goes on the show. And to have Howard Stern sit there and have, like, no clue. Like, I don't know. It sounds great, but I, I, haven't, I have no clue. Which, uh, by the way, is an example of those that don't live in this sports world bubble. And it's always uh, fascinating and humorous to me. A Howard Stern who has, he's clueless. He doesn't know who Stephen A. Smith is, right? It seems like that is so foreign, but we're foreign to them. People that are so consumed and wrapped up in sports seem so odd, like an oddity to, to a Howard Stern. But the reason why I bring it up, well, number one, it was a, a funny exchange, an interview between those two yesterday. Howard Stern made a great point about sports media where he said why do you have two yellers on the same show shouldn't you have one yeller and then the co the co-host be a little bit calmer instead of putting chris russo and Stephen a screaming at each other unfortunately that's a lot of what the sports industry has become on tv shannon sharp and skip bayless originally with Stephen a and skip just get two people they're just going to yell at each other for two hours and you know what it works i mean they're doing it for a reason because people are tuning in it's not my cup of tea but that's what it's become. But I love that point by Howard. He said, from a broadcasting perspective, that makes no sense. Why do you want guys just yelling at each other? And I agree. On paper, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But it's a working model for these different shows that embrace the debate. And people tune in for whatever reason. But the reason why I bring up uh, Howard Stern is because, you know, Stern has a little bit of this as well. I think Stern is the all-time, he, he's the GOAT of talk radio. Greatest of all time. Rush Limbaugh's right up there. Even if you didn't agree with what Limbaugh was saying or never listened to the show, I didn't listen to the show, but you can appreciate what he was able to accomplish and do in the industry. Same with Howard Stern. Maybe you were never a Howard Stern fan. It's hard to argue with what he accomplished and what he did just for the, the medium and what he's done in his own career personally. But I like the new Howard Stern a lot better, the one that's been on Sirius XM, where he no longer does like the childish uh, stuff uh, the uh, very like sexual nature of the show. Now he's a little more mature, and he does these great interviews where he gets these great guests, and they do hour-long interviews, and they talk about things they've never talked about in interviews. I prefer that. I like this version of Howard. He's older. He's a little tamer. He's not as crude. He's become a little more political. Uh, you can leave that part out. I don't really care for the, all the politics. But I love the interviews, and I love that stuff. He's done away with a lot of the nonsense. And I think part of it is, number one, when you go to Sirius XM and anything goes, well, then it's no longer as fun to push that envelope. If you've ever seen the movie Private Parts, which is a great movie about Howard, and uh, his program director, which they call, what, Pig Vomit, Paul Giamatti's character, right? It was always, he was always getting ticked off at Howard because of the things they were doing on radio that you really probably shouldn't be getting away with, but he was. 
Once you go to Sirius XM, though, there's none of that. You could do whatever you want. Right? It's not terrestrial radio. There's no FCC. So part of it loses its luster. Like, well, this is no longer fun. It was only fun before because it was like the forbidden fruit. But I think the other big thing, too, why Howard has changed so much is, yeah, age. Yes, because the restrictions are no longer there. But also, Sirius paid him $500 million. So it becomes a little bit different. When now you're making 500 mil, you don't have to do these crazy bits to try to get that popularity or that money. Right? You're doing just fine. In fact, last year, Howard Stern took the entire summer off. What does he care? He's getting $500 million. He could do whatever he wants. And so I bring this up because it may not be the perfect comparison, but these golfers now going to the Live Golf Tour. Mickelson, you could finish in last place every event. You're still getting 200 mil. So I think that's something that's kind of working against the Live Golf Tour. The PGA Tour, these guys, they got to play well to earn their paycheck. They're still hungry, and right, it's like the college athletes, at least before name, image, and likeness. they got to leave it all out there to get the big contract. Then you watch the NBA, and it's like, oh, John Wall's making fun. He sat out this year. He got traded to the Rockets. The Rockets said, yeah, you're not going to be a big part of our plans. He said, all right, then I'm not playing. And he got $40 million. And that's the difference. Once you get that big money, I think it's human nature. We'd all be guilty. You lose a little bit of that drive. What does Mickelson care? He's, got, he's just got $200 million. What does he care about how well he does out there? He played terrible this past weekend. He was like 11 over. What does he care? And he's laughing all the way to the bank or gambling it away. Howard Stern, same idea. He got 500 mil from Sirius. He's like, all right, forget all these hokey bits. Let's just do interviews now. Right, let's just take it easy. Bring in a bunch of celebrities, and we'll talk about their music instead of doing these crazy bits, you know, pushing the envelope. Sirius XM's paying me 500 mil. Uh, I'm not going to screw around with that. I'm going to take the whole summer off instead and count my money. Not bad. Not a bad way to make a living. Anyways, you can always reach out to the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Leave a comment for the show. Uh, we'll get to Trent's takes next hour because I've been blowing through all the breaks today. But before we, uh, before we hit another commercial break, let's get to this. I love Seinfeld, of course. I think Jerry Seinfeld is one of the all-time greats. We were talking about stand-ups earlier this week on the show. I think Jerry is a legend. He's on the Mount Rushmore of stand-up comedians. This comes from Trent and I were talking off-air about an AI, right, artificial intelligence. This comes from an AI. They had an, uh, an AI, a computer essentially, took all of Jerry's jokes and ran it through the model, and this computer spit out its own joke. So this is Jerry Seinfeld, but this is a joke written by the computer, and it's voiced by another AI that does um, whatever they call it, like that deep fake. They created Jerry Seinfeld's joke. So when you hear this, this is a computer that came up with a Seinfeld joke and then came up with Seinfeld's voice to then voice the joke. I added a little bit of a laugh track to make it sound a little more natural, but here's what a computer came up with when trying to write material for Jerry Seinfeld. Why does it seem like every time you're watching TV, there's a commercial for a new brand of cat food, and it's always some kind of crazy new flavor, like tuna and salmon surprise, or chicken and liver delight. I don't need a new flavor of cat food every other week. Just tell me what was so bad about the old ones. They were great. And why are they always trying to trick us with these new flavors? They'll be like, we know you like tuna, so we put some tuna in this can, but we also put some other stuff in there, too. I don't want to have to guess what's in my cat food. I just want it to be tuna. That's it. Just tuna. No surprises. And don't even get me started on those specialty cat foods. I saw one the other day that was for indoor cats. What the heck is that about? Are there different foods for different kinds of cats now? So I don't know about you, but I'm not going to start feeding my cat different foods, depending on where exactly he is located. 
That's just ridiculous. Not bad. The material's not bad, and it's right. That's something that Seinfeld will come up with. Now the delivery could be a little bit better, but it is, after all, a computer delivering the joke. Right? It's a little. Uh, the delivery's a little awkward. But now we're getting into uh, an area here where computers are writing materials or material for stand-up comics and able to just voice it. That wasn't actually Jerry Seinfeld. That's a computer pretending to be Seinfeld, and you really can't tell the difference. No, the American public should be concerned. I, I think I think we should uh, state a national emergency because uh, AI is getting too smart, Luke. Too smart for its own good. If they can, that sounded basically exactly like Jerry <laughs> Seinfeld right there. So if they can do that, and uh, yeah, we were talking off-air about the AI communication with the Google engineer having, you know, real emotions and things like that. This is getting a little fishy, Luke. Get a little fishy. Yeah. I'm not even going to have to do a Morrow Midday show anymore. We're going to get a, a computer. I'm going to put all the podcasts into that computer, and it's going to spit <laughs> out my takes, what I would say about certain subjects. Ooh. And it probably nail it. They know the script. Throw an analogy here. Reference a obscure 90s movie. <laughs> talk about your family too much. There you go. You got the Morrow Midday show. The AI could figure it out pretty quick. But I saw that. I thought, oh, this actually is. Uh, Jerry's probably going to steal this bit now. A computer took all of his uh, jokes and spit out, hey, I think this is something that Jerry would come up with. And I think the AI nailed it. Watch out. Soon we're going to be working for these. AI. They're going to take over the world. They're going to be running the Morrow Midday Show. Uh, coming up, we uh, still got to get to uh, Goodell in the NFL. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. I believe no team has ever won the softball and baseball College World Series in the same year. UCLA got both teams in the championships in 2010, but they lost baseball. I wonder who that was against. 2011, uh, Florida got into both and lost both. And uh, Oklahoma now have softball in the championship and the baseball team's also in the championship in fact softball won the national title for oklahoma they've turned into a powerhouse we'll see how baseball does i think this would be the first time ever that the same school wins both the softball and baseball championships if they pull it off in the same year so we'll see what happens hey you can always join the conversation 843-721-9500 to give us a call let's go back to the phones ricardo is with us ricardo what's going on how are you oh great man i'll tell you this heat yeah you're not kidding Poker out here. Quick question for you. Everybody's talking about this LIV. And I did some research. Um, two years ago, uh, Russian Oglyart owned the Nets. And uh, Putin pressured him to sell it. He sold the Barclays Center and he sold the Nets to Joe Tsai, who's Alibaba, which is connected to the Chinese Republic. And nobody ever even does their homework with the, you know, he wrote an op-ed against Daryl Morley. Well, Houston, when he went against, uh, he asked everybody, you know, he's talking about China and where it was a big thing during the pandemic. And everybody doesn't understand how the NBA is wrapped up in this China deal. And that's just as bad as the Saudi Arabian, you know, the killing of the reporter. 
I just don't understand, you know, the narrative is not being, you know, sports radio controls the narrative, and ESPN does as well, but something's not wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm with you there. I think the big difference is that a lot of these um, media companies are more connected to the NBA than they are the golf world. So, unfortunately, everyone's really been silenced with this whole NBA thing. And when Daryl Morey did step up and say something, uh, he got punished and he had to like apologize and the NBA punished him. So I'm with you. For the same people that are very critical of the Live Golf Tour and what's going on in golf, should be saying the same things about what the NBA has been doing all these years with China and LeBron James and all these other guys in the league as well. Um, a lot of times people just uh, kind of pick their battles, pick and choose what exactly they get upset with. Yeah, but they realize the Russian oligarch owned the Nets. And now a guy with China owns the WNBA team and an NBA team. And he has close ties with the China. I, I don't know. The whole thing is, is just crazy. <laughs> And they're worried about a golf, you know, and these guys are bailing. I thought in America we have morals and values, and these golfers are bailing for a higher dollar to go across the street. It's pretty sad. It shows the morals and values of our country, you yeah. know? Yeah. Hey, money usually uh, money usually talks, right? It's uh, it's uh, capitalism. You go where who's, if they're going to come in and offer more money. Right? They're going to get these guys. Um but, no, I certainly I, – I get the point. I've seen a lot of people make this point that, yeah, for those being so tough on uh, the golfers with the Live Golf Tour, you know, same idea that you have to say something about the NBA and their dealings with China. And, and I think Greg Norman was kind of trying to point out that hypocrisy, especially about the PGA Tour themselves, of their advertisers being what Saudi-based companies or the money coming from a similar source. So, for sure um, – I mean, even our own country, right? We're wrapped up in a lot of that stuff with Saudi Arabia. Obviously, the the gas you put in your car, your iPhones, your a lot of your clothes are made in China as well. So, it's not so uh, cut and dry with all this, and you know, which is why I see it from both sides. I don't know if I'm riding the fence on it, but when it comes to these golfers and the Live Golf Tour, again, I wish it wasn't the case. Not only because how they treat their own people, Saudi Arabia, what they did to that journalist, but. To me, I think the biggest issue is that the FBI found that, what was it, 11 of 17 people involved in the attacks on September 11th were uh, from Saudi Arabia or connected with Saudi Arabia. I think that's the biggest issue to me. But again, in defense of the golfers, um, when somebody comes and offers you $200 million to work less, I mean, it would be hard for all of us to turn that money down, even when it's coming from uh, a terrible person. So... I guess I see both sides of of it. Um, it's not a great source of income or, you know, great people to get into business with. But it's hard to turn down that money. When they come and they offer you 150 gu- guaranteed more money than you've made on the PGA Tour while you've been grinding, and you can work less now, and you don't have to worry about a cut, and it's only three days instead of four to go win, and you'll win extra money on top of the guaranteed money, it's hard to fault these guys. It reminds me of the Ricky Gervais uh, joke from the Golden Globes that we played on the show a couple weeks ago where he was giving actors a hard time people in Hollywood who get up there and preach to us common folk about the things we should be doing and yada yada the term we use now is woke you would describe them as being very woke and as Gervais says right, if ISIS started a movie production company you'd have your agent call them as well that we can all say what we want but once the money comes around once you see like uh, the price tag or the money they're being offered We can forget our morals or our grandstanding 
or some of the things you may believe in or want to believe in or think you should believe in because uh, money is king. And a lot of these guys are chasing the money, but it's hard to blame them because most decisions are made be based off of money, for better or worse. Coming up, we'll get back towards the NBA draft, plus this Roger Goodell nonsense. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, what is going on with Roger Goodell in this investigation with the NFL? We'll get to that. Plus, we'll circle back to the NBA draft tonight. We'll talk with a member of the Charleston Battery in about 15 minutes. And we got to get to Trent's takes. I've been doing all sorts of talking this afternoon. So we're doing Trent's takes here in the final hour today before we go. Hey, it's up. Donor Appreciation Week for CSL Plasma. Go over there, donate plasma. If you've never done it before, there's nothing to be worried of. It's a lot like giving blood. It's safe. It's easy. And it's very helpful for those who need it. You also get 100 bucks the first time you donate plasma. You can earn up to 800 bucks the first month. And because it's Donor Appreciation Week, you could also win some other things like bonus money. They're giving away grills at the end of the month, which is in about a week. They're giving away fire sticks, tablets, a TV uh, at the end of the week, tomorrow. All sorts of stuff. And if you mention that you heard about CSL Plasma on the radio, you'll get bonus cash. So still time. Today, tomorrow, head over there. It does the first time. If you've never given plasma before, the first time, it is going to take about two to three hours. A little bit of a process. They put you through a physical. They make sure you're good to donate plasma. You answer some questions. You do a little health check thing. And then the actual process takes you know, about, about an hour, maybe. So it is a little time-consuming, so don't think you can do it on your lunch break. But if you got some downtime today or tomorrow, it is Donor Appreciation Week. You can get some cool things out of it, and they give you $100 cash. We were just talking about the importance of cash. Actually, they don't necessarily give you cash. Oftentimes, it's on a debit card. But we were just talking about inflation and having money and trying to ask for uh, discounts. There's a little extra money in your pocket as well for that summer vacation or to pay a bill or Get ready for college or get your kids their books for college if they're heading off to school, whatever it may be. With inflation, right? Ah, you could uh, use a couple extra bucks by donating plasma. Appreciate the kind words yesterday from uh, from Henry, a listener of the show, who said he appreciates the family stories. We always talk about experiences, and those are the experiences that I've had, right? the experiences of my life with my family. So oftentimes I feel like, eh, nobody really cares. Talk about my family all the time. I've been called a mama's boy before. That's fine. I view it as a compliment. I was lucky enough to grow up in a great family, love my family. But uh, you always talk about your experiences, and uh, a lot of those experiences that I had was, you know, growing up with a family. So I appreciate Henry. At least uh, somebody appreciates the family stories. Uh, hey, today, 33 years ago today, the original Batman was released. This is my favorite of the Batmans. Wow. Ah, uh, love this movie. 
1989, it was released. Batman was what it was called. I mean, you give me Jack Nicholson. I thought he was great as the Joker. Michael Keaton, I thought, was a great Batman. Kim Basinger, come on. People had her on the wall back in the day. And then Prince did the soundtrack. And um, Tim Burton was the director, right? Oh, what a all-star cast. Yeah, Love incredible. the original Batman. The, the original Batman's unbelievable. There, there is, I mean, I have my allegiances to the other, you know, movies. But uh, I would say, yeah, it's probably the, uh, the creme de la creme. Yeah. That was a big deal, too. I mean, that was the start of it. Now every movie is about a superhero. Back then, that wasn't the case. You were, you were a nerd if you liked super. You don't want to tell people about all your comic book collections. And when they got Michael Keaton, that was also a big deal. Back Now, this was before, of course, you know, Internet and Reddit and Twitter. But people were wondering, Michael Keaton, because up until that point, you know, he was doing uh, kind of like comedies. And they thought, can he play Batman? He was Mr. Mom. And they thought, Mr. Mom's going to come play Batman? Get out of here. But I thought Keaton uh, knocked it out of the park. And Jack, of course, is just tremendous. I, I know Heath Ledger did a tremendous job a few years ago, but uh, Jack is the uh, originator from the film. Uh, Bobby's going to come running over here and say, what about uh, the TV series from 60 years ago? Nobody considers the TV. We're not talking about Adam West. We're talking Batman movies when we talk about Batman. Yeah, I mean, just look at the uh, the costume he was wearing uh, back, you know, 60 years ago. We yeah. can we can figure that one out. Come on. I will say, though, as a kid, I did like watching the old Batman, t- that old TV show, like on Saturdays. But when we talk Batman, people say, like, what's your favorite Batman? No one's considering the TV show from all those years ago. Tell you what, Zoe Kravitz is kind of, you know, up on my list as far as characters in Ooh. the uh, in the Batman, uh, you know, movies, if you will. She did an incredible job, as well as Paul Dano. And we're talking about the recent film, yeah, folks, right. with uh, with Robert uh, Pattinson, who yeah. did the uh, who did the Batman. I do love Paul Dano. I still haven't seen that one. I haven't seen the last couple of Batmans, actually. Oh, come on. I've, I've seen the original more often than I've seen the new ones. <laughs> I love that Batman. So 33 years ago today came out. That was a big deal when that movie came out. And, of course, it was in the summer, right? You get some big releases in the summer, um, at least back in the day. Now theaters aren't as big of a deal. But around the holidays and in the summer, you get some big flicks. Hey, uh, yesterday, I heard uh, during the commercial break, uh, or actually when Ricardo called last hour, talking about how hot it is, I think it's supposed to cool off a little bit starting tomorrow. I mean, it's still going to be warm, but maybe not quite high 90s. I went to go play pickup basketball yesterday. It was a, The car said it was 103 on the way to the court. And we play outdoors, and there's not much shade, and it's on blacktop, which is even hotter. That's like the hardest thing I do is play basketball at 100-degree weather outdoors. Larry David used to do a joke. I can't really tell it on air, but about the toughest thing he does in life, and it's about self-pleasure with a fever. You go look up the bit. Um, For me, that's the toughest thing I do on a week-to-week basis is playing basketball outdoors when it's so hot out. I don't know why these guys, uh, it's not my game. I just come and play. I don't know why we can't wait until the sun goes down an hour later. But a lot of them are, um, like, veterans, so they have done much worse. So they're not really worried about playing basketball when it's hot out. And I'm over there in the corner, you know, crying because it's, it's so hot out. But let me tell you, I brought the A game yesterday. They were calling me Paolo Boncaro, and the, the, the fans were going crazy for me. And we have the NBA draft tonight. Paolo Boncaro has become the favorite in the betting markets to be the number one pick. You know, the Orlando Magic have always nailed the number one pick. Whether it's Shaq, Penny, Dwight Howard, they're three for three. They have the number one pick tonight. Woj believes they're still going with Jabari Smith, who has been the long thought of number one pick. Then you get to Oklahoma City at number two. They have more picks than anybody, so they can take a gamble. And I think there's no bigger gamble at the top of the draft board than Chet Holmgren. So I think the Thunder go with him. They're a team that can take that swing. The Magic, not so much. You got to get it right if you're Orlando. 
the Thunder, even though they're picking at number two. And we got other first-round picks, right? That's what they would be saying. And they have done a good job under Sam Presti of drafting. Then the Rockets at number three should take Paolo Boncaro. He's my favorite player in the draft. NBA teams don't see it the same way, evidently. But I would take Paolo Boncaro first overall. I think if you're the Rockets picking third and he's still on the board, you scoop him up. And then the Kings at four, everybody's going to be calling them tonight to try to trade for that fourth pick. So I don't know if they're going to hang around. Somebody's going to offer them all right, a lot of pieces. The Kings could use a lot of pieces to build. They'll probably trade out, and somebody's going to want to get into that number four spot to probably take Jaden Ivey. And then we'll see what happens the rest of the way. Pistons pick fifth, so on and so forth. The Hornets have two picks in the first round, including number 13. I would love for them to be able to get Mark Williams out of Duke if he's still available. We'll see. There are also reports that the Hornets may trade both of their first-round picks. I don't know if I like that idea, but, of course, it depends what you get back for them for those draft picks. But we shall see uh, what happens tonight. I think Paolo Boncaro is the best player in the draft. I'd put Jabari Smith, too. I would also take Jaden Ivey and Keegan Murray ahead of Chet Holmgren. I am not high on Chet Holmgren. I don't think he's worth the gamble. I would stay away from him. He doesn't have the body. And I look at uh, body makeup as a big thing. Now, look, Kevin Durant didn't have the body, and, uh, boy, has he proved some people wrong. Joel Embiid got bigger. Anthony Davis got bigger. Giannis put on weight. But I compare it to uh, a young quarterback coming into the league that, as they're developing, at least if they're a mobile quarterback, they can still make plays. If you don't have a body and you're still developing in the NBA, right, you can't do a whole lot. If you're, like, you're still working on your jump shot and you don't have a lot of size either, it's like, what do you bring into the table? At least a quarterback, well, you can scamper, make a play when, when you don't have something downfield or when you feel pressured or when you can't read the defense. Like Anthony Edwards, right, came into the league. People were saying, hey, he's going to have to work on his jump shot. Yeah, but he's freakishly athletic that he'll still get some layups. He'll get some dunks. Zion Williamson, same idea. Oh, he's not a great shooter. That's okay. As he works on his jumper, in the meantime, he's going to have highlight dunks and be able to body his way to the basket. Uh, for Holmgren, he's a great shooter. It's a little bit different when you get to the NBA, though, and the speed of the game and the size and keeping up with the physicality. I have a lot of concerns about him tonight or just in the future. We'll see where he winds up tonight. The Thunder have done a good job picking at number two, going back to their Seattle uh, Supersonics days. And they got Kevin Durant number two. So those are the teams picking at the top of the draft tonight. You can uh, catch my full breakdown of the draft. We started the day talking about the NBA draft. Find it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. But before we catch up with a member of the Charleston Battery, I do have to get to this today uh, because I've been teasing it all afternoon. Roger Goodell and this investigation going on with uh, like the Supreme Court. It's supposed to be on the whole Washington football team and Daniel Snyder, which is a important, uh, that's an important matter. Instead, it's turned into questions about barstool sports and deflate gate and Ron uh, or Jack Del Rio tweets and whatever else, everything else, all these stupid questions. Things got a little uh, heated yesterday during Goodell, his um, questioning the interrogation yesterday uh, here's how. Here's one of the clips from yesterday with this whole hearing going on with Goodell in the NFL. Thank you for your testimony and for coming today. I now recognize myself for five minutes. Madam Chair, I have a parliamentary inquiry. The, the gentleman is recognized. Madam Chair, the U.S. Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Watkins, makes clear that Congress's investigative power must be related to and in the furtherance of a legitimate task of Congress, especially in light of the the testimony by Mr. Goodell, 
How does continuing this hearing actually relate to a legitimate task of Congress in the face of record high inflation, record high gas prices, a completely unsecured border, a fentanyl crisis that is killing more people between the ages of 18 and 45 than any other cause in the United States, a baby formula crisis, a tampon crisis? Madam Chair, the commissioner has just detailed in his own testimony that the, the, the Washington commanders, Redskins, whatever you choose to call them, have been held accountable. They've made necessary reforms to the organization. You got a chair here for Mr. Snyder who told the committee he was the not going to be here. The gentleman will suspend. Madam Chair, what is the purpose of this hearing? What is the purpose of this hearing? It won't. This, has, this is not about a stated parliamentary inquiry. That is the parliamentary inquiry, have, Madam Chair. What is the purpose of this? You can bang the gavel all you want, but I don't really care. What is the purpose of continuing this, Madam Chair? That is the parliamentary inquiry. And how does, does Congress's business actually be continued? How does, it, how does Congress's business actually be continued by continuing this hearing? Okay. All right. I now recognize my... I, that was um, Byron Donalds from he's a Florida. Uh, he's from he's from Florida, Florida politician. Uh, yeah, I agree with him. I think he makes a good point. And he listed a, a bunch of issues that are more important right now in the country than this. Now, look, what's going on with the Washington football team and what they're looking into is very important. But then don't use up the time to ask silly questions about deflate gate. Who cares? That happened years ago. Uh, that's been handled by the NFL. We've moved on. You're asking questions about uh, Portnoy, the founder whatever his title now is, CEO, whatever he is, of Barstool Sports. Who cares? This is what we're wasting time trying to figure out why Dave Portnoy can't go to football games. Who cares? There are more. How about you figure out uh, gas prices and uh, the inflation rate and all the other issues, the shortages we have in this country, instead of getting all these people together and bringing Roger Goodell to ask him, hey, how come Dave Portnoy can't come to football games anymore? You want to know why things don't get done in this country? Because of this. Because they can't even stay on topic when it comes to investigating the Washington football team. That instead, they're spending time with these silly questions of Goodell wasting everybody's time. Props to uh, Byron Donalds, who's the only one there with some common sense, evidently, saying, what are we doing? Why are we wasting time asking this, this nonsense to the commissioner of the NFL? Here was uh, one of the clips. This is Jim Jordan, um, who's uh, from Ohio. Th this is uh, like a... I, I feel like Jim thought he had like a, a gotcha moment. I got Goodell now. This is just an utter waste of time. Here is the questioning from Jim Jordan yesterday. Why do you ban Dave Portnoy from NFL games? He's a journalist. In fact, he's a sports journalist. Why is he banned? Uh, Congressman, I'm not familiar with that uh, issue. I'm happy to really? check with my staff, but I'm not aware of that. Yes. Well, I think, I think we're That's all correct. aware of that. We're all aware of that. I mean, he interviewed, interviewed the President of the United States interviewed President Trump in the White House. It seems to me if you can get into the White House, you should be able to get into a football game, particularly as a member of the press and, and a member of the sports press. You don't know anything about that? I don't, sir. Do you agree with the Washington Redskins' decision? Uh, and that was uh, after talking about the First Amendment, yada, yada, yada. I mean, what are we doing here? Why are we wasting time? Dave Portnoy is a sports journalist like my drunk uncle who watches the games on Sunday is a sports journalist. Go look at Barstool Sports. Tell me uh, how the, uh, what journalistic integrities they have. Are you kidding? Who cares? He can't go to a football game? It's because he's been arrested twice uh, when he was uh, first time. They handcuffed themselves in the headquarters of the NFL to protest Deflategate. And the second time, they forged passes to get to press events. And so the NFL banned them. He forged media credentials to go to a, an area he wasn't allowed to. 
Who cares? He can't go to games. And by the way, there's a big misconception that even apparently Jim Jordan doesn't seem to grasp. That when you talk about First Amendment and the, uh, the, you know, the ability of, of free, spree- free speech, we all have free speech. We're not free from consequences, though. That's the big difference that people seem to have no clue about. That you believe because of free speech, you could go say whatever you want and nothing can happen. No, that's not the case. Right? The NFL, they can punish uh, Dave Portnoy for doing certain things. And they punished him by banning him from going to games. You have free speech. Like Ron, um, Jack Del Rio. I did not agree with that, all that stuff. Like the NFL uh, fining him for a tweet. Uh, I don't know. I think that's you know pushing the envelope. But he has the freedom to tweet whatever he wants. doesn't mean he can't be punished for it by his employer. That's not how it works. Sure, I could sit here on the microphone and I have freedom of speech. I could say, but there'd still be punishment if I say something stupid. I can't sit uh, in the boss's office and say, yeah, but I have freedom of speech. I could say whatever I want. That's not how it works. There are still rules to all this. There's still punishment for your actions. And that's what happened with Portnoy. And the government, you're going to waste time talking to Goodell about uh, barstool sports and why he can't go to the game? No wonder we're in the position we're in. No wonder you're not getting anything done. Wasting everybody's time with this nonsense. We'll catch up with a member of the Charleston Battery when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Usually every Thursday we catch up with a member of the Charleston Battery. And joining us now, one of their defenders, Matt Sheldon, is with us. Matt, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm good. I'm good. We just had training and some yoga, and I just took a quick nap, so I'm feeling pretty good. Oh, perfect. Well, appreciate the time. We'll uh, squeeze in a few minutes with you here. Between everything else you got to do to get ready. Um, first off, how have things gone so far? First year for you at the Charleston Battery. How have your uh, first few months in the Low Country been? I'm loving it. I absolutely love Charleston. I think it's one of my favorite cities I've ever lived in. I love the ocean, the rivers, and everything. And then uh, the team has been great. I'm, I'm loving the coaching staff and uh, all the guys, and just really happy here. You mentioned the coaching staff. You were the first, you know, new player signed after uh, Connor Casey became head coach of the Battery. So I'm sure that's a nice little feather in the cap. But also, what was it about the that relationship or connection, or just about the Battery? What was it that you know ended up bringing you here to the Charleston Battery? It was a combination of a lot of things. I mean, first the fan base and just the the history behind the club was huge. I was definitely looking for a, a new journey, a new opera, uh, new adventure after being in Tulsa for like three years. And uh, Connor Casey came pretty aggressively after me in the offseason. And I kind of was like, yeah, this all sounds great. And I just was really excited to try something new. And it's kind of fulfilled all my expectations so far. And in that first game, you guys took on Tulsa, the team you played with. That was here at home at Patriots Point. Was it odd at all, you know, going up against uh, Tulsa in your first game with the Battery? Yeah, it's kind of funny how it was the very first game back, going up against all my old coaches and old teammates and everything. Uh, it's more just fun, more exciting. You kind of have a little bit extra motivation and, and uh, just you really want to win and beat your old team, and we, we won. It was a good game, and it uh, definitely meant a lot that we were able to get three points from that. And now going back this weekend, it's the same type of thing. Yeah, I'll ask you about that in a moment, but but in the first matchup, when you win that game, do, do you send off a little text afterwards to some of those coaches or players, you know, now that you have bragging rights, at least until this weekend, you know, when you beat FC Tulsa that first time, did you, you talk a little smack to the old team? 
Uh, not so much because I know there's two games. So there's always two stories. Uh, after the game, I definitely talked with, caught up with a lot of my old teammates and coaches and stuff, and it was more just cordial. But if we win this weekend as well, then, then I'll definitely talk some smack. <laughs> what do you imagine it'll be like this weekend? Right, that, that one at least was was home for you guys for the batteries here in the Low Country. Now you you go play there against uh, against them at Tulsa. What do you imagine it's going to be like uh, this time around going to play them? Well, I checked the weather, and I think it's going to be like 103 degrees in Tulsa on Saturday, so it's going to be probably really hot and humid. It's going to be tough. They're a good team. They're a really good team. They're well-managed, so it's going to be a really tough game. But if we stick to our tactics and do everything that uh, we've been working on this week and last few weeks, I think we have a really good shot of winning. You know, a lot of times we see in football, if an NFL team is playing an opponent and somebody becomes available, they scoop them up, they bring them in on the practice squad just to try to get the – the inside scoop from their opponent that week. They'll sign a former player. For you, when you go up against this team, you know, if it's the same coaching staff or similar players, do you feel like you have any sort of advantage going up against uh, these guys or this organization that you were a part of the last couple of years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have played under their tactics and, and style of play for the last three years. I know all almost every single guy on that team. Um, even some of the new guys have played against the, the new guys for the last couple of years. So I've definitely been helping out my teammates and telling them, talking to them about the, the playing styles of the individual players, talking to the coaching staff, especially before that first game, um, just how they like to play and, and kind of their identity, just to give our team any advantage we can to win. Talking with Matt Sheldon of the Charleston Battery. So obviously the season did not begin, at least after that first match. It, it did not go as you guys would like, but when you look at the recent results, you got a draw on the road, then a one-goal loss at home, then a 3 nothing win, now another draw last time out against Tampa Bay. Uh, do you feel like uh, you guys are, are turning the corner here midseason? Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I think just overall, if you kind of watched our games and really looked at how we were playing, every game was getting better and better, figuring out problems, and now I think we're, play- we're playing our best football that we've played in a long time. And I think even on the results, like we tied Tampa, which is an amazing team, we beat Pittsburgh River Hounds, which is always top of the table. So some big results to get some top of the table teams. So hopefully uh, this is like marking, like you said, uh, turning the corner for the rest of the season. Now, when you bring in a new coach, you bring in a lot of pieces, there can be that adjustment period. It can take a little time to gel. Uh, can you put your finger on what it's been for you guys these last couple of weeks that have led to some of the better results or, or seemingly you know, have been, have been uh, part of the reason why you guys have been playing better lately? I don't know if there's just one thing, but I think it's it's kind of like what you said, just new coaches, new players all coming together. We also have a, a lot of a very young team, a lot of young guys. And I think it just took a little bit to get everybody on the same page, figuring it out, what we want to do defensively, offensively. And I think it's just like everything kind of finally coming together and clicking. Uh, there's not It's hard to just put your finger on one thing, though. Now, I want to ask you, away from uh, your soccer career, you're also you're known around the globe for your YouTube channel, which people can find. Search Become Elite. You have a bunch of subscribers. You also have a corresponding Instagram, TikTok, podcast as well. So this is really interesting. Uh, let me ask you about this. Let's go back to the origin story. What was the start of this when, when you realized you wanted to you know, put this content out there and have really built an audience? Yeah, it was 2015. I had dropped out of school and was trying to play professionally. I ended up just training with a uh, professional team in Sacramento, which is right where my, my university was, and just trained with them in the morning. And then in the afternoons, I had nothing because I didn't have any school. I didn't have any other job. And I kind of just was a little stir crazy because I, I wasn't playing in the game. So I was really just training, and that was it. 
So I wanted to do something. I wanted to do some coaching. I started doing some one-on-one coaching and some little individual training sessions with some kids. But I thought, you know what, I can reach more people if I post what I'm saying and my drills and everything online. And then that sparked uh, everything. Yeah, so that's inter- you know, it's hard to build an audience like that. Was it just organic, or was there some sort of push you got, or a specific, uh, you know, a, uh, a specific video that went viral? Like, how was it that maybe it's just been over time? How was it that you first really took off to build the, the big audience you have with these videos and and uh, social media? It honestly was just very organic over a long period of time. It just started off getting about like five new viewers, new subscribers, new followers a month, and then all of a sudden it turned into ten new followers a month. 20, 50, 100, and then all of a sudden I was getting 5,000 new people a month. Um, but I think it really, the, the, the growth started to accelerate a little bit more when I went over to Germany. I was just vlogging the behind-the-scenes life of a pro, and people really liked that. I don't think there was much of that on YouTube or anywhere. And, uh, yeah, I think people just were really hooked into that and kind of hooked into my story, and I think that really helped um, my, all of my social media kind of pop off a little bit. So with that said, if you know if that's uh, if that was the big takeoff, was there a certain video or post? Like, do you have a memory of of that time when you looked down at your phone or you got the notifications and saw like, wow, this is really taking off? Do you remember a moment where you saw like, wow, this is really becoming something? Yeah, it was, it's kind of funny to think about it now, but I remember posting one little vlog about my life and I got like a thousand views in the first day or two. I was like, I was just completely baffled that a thousand people had watched my training and my workout and my, what I eat. And I'm like, wow, there's a thousand people that are interested in what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And I thought that was so crazy. And now flash forward to today. And I think some of my videos have like a million, two million views and stuff. But yeah, I think it's just that number, a thousand for whatever reason it was kind of hit me hard. Yeah. That's a big number, especially when you're starting out, you get to that 1000. That's a, a big benchmark. How much time has to go into uh, something like this? You know, there's a lot of people that, um, are listening that probably would love this is the way of the world now, you know, where uh, people put out this content on social media or YouTube and you can really build a brand. How much time do you have to spend on putting together these videos or just devoting to um, this type of uh, 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 output on social media and YouTube? How much uh, goes into it? It's an insane amount, honestly. Like uh, I'll film all day long if I'm doing a vlog or even if I'm just doing a shorter video, I'll film for about an hour, two hours. Um, And then I probably put in eight, nine hours of editing for every single YouTube video I put out. And then I put out a video, I try to put out one or two videos a week. So it's a ton of video editing. And then not only all the Instagram stuff and the TikTok stuff and the podcast and everything as well. Um, So it adds up to a lot, but I've always kind of like balanced it out with my career as a pro and just told myself, look, professional football player, like that's my job. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I need to focus on. If I ever feel like I'm being overwhelmed, I'm just going to focus on that. And then in my extra free time, that's when I'll edit videos and do everything for Become Elite. Talking about Matt Sheldon, did you have that in your background, or, or, or you just got into through all of this over the years, uh, like video editing? Did, growing up, were you into editing videos and everything, or this just became a thing in the last, you know, seven, eight years? I made, like, a video or two for some high school things, like some high school projects. I made like, my own highlight videos in high school and in college, so I knew how to edit videos. But if you look at my very first YouTube videos, it was the most cut-and-dry, simple editing ever. And now, flash forward today, now i got the drone, doing extra stuff, effects, intros, all this kind of stuff. So it's definitely just been a full dive-in headfirst in the pool and learn-as-you-go type process. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's Matt Sheldon. Check out uh, Become Elite on YouTube and the 
uh, Instagram, TikTok accounts as well. Are you into the TikTok? I, you know, I've, I've never, I'm not big into social media myself. I know TikTok's wildly popular. People have mixed reviews. You big into the TikTok videos? I love it. I love it. I'm not over there dancing and doing <laughs> stuff, you know, like, uh, like a lot of the younger generation is and everything. But I just kind of post exactly what I post on Instagram, my drills and all that kind of stuff on TikTok and just make the videos a little bit shorter. And they seem to do pretty well. Yeah, so that's cool. Cool resources for those out there as well to go check out these videos and uh, learn from Matt along the way. Hey, getting back to the actual soccer, uh, you played in Germany, you played in New Zealand. What was it like playing uh, soccer in other countries like that? Amazing. Amazing experience. Just everything. Just to be pushed outside your comfort zone, experience a new culture, have that culture shock, and then to also be paid to play soccer like that is just, is just amazing. I mean, I always had a dream to go over to Europe, especially to play over there just because that was, like, you know, so ingrained in the culture and everything. So Germany was particularly pretty cool. You're from, what, Washington originally? What was it about uh, soccer growing up? Was it a family sport? Uh, did your father play? What was it that drove you to spo- uh, soccer specifically? I played all the sports, um, honestly, growing up. It wasn't until I was about 11, 12, where I kind of focused more on soccer. But my dad was a big basketball player, and I think he really wanted to push me towards basketball. But being six feet tall and 170 pounds, like I could have maybe squeezed in as a point guard or something. But uh, it was more I was just better at soccer, and I thought I had a, a more of a future there, and I kind of enjoyed it a little bit more, just slightly more than basketball. So um, when I was doing well, you kind of enjoyed it a little bit more, and I kept on just for putting more time into that, and then I got better because I put more time into it. Before we let you go, uh, I asked you what it's been like here in Charleston, playing with the Battery. What about the home crowd at uh, Patriots Point so far? How have you enjoyed playing at Patriots Point this year here in front of the home fans? Yeah, Patriots Point's amazing. The home fans are awesome. They've been with us through the entire season, good, bad, and hopefully we can get a lot more uh, good moments going forward. He's Matt Sheldon of the Charleston Battery and also a, uh, a star online as well. Check out Become Elite, the YouTube page and Instagram and TikTok as well. And see his latest videos. The Battery will take on Tulsa, his former team, and uh, hopefully we'll get another win against Tulsa, and uh, Matt will keep those bragging rights. Matt, appreciate the time and all the insight and uh, the breakdowns, and best of luck uh, against Tulsa in the rest of the season. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, pleasure's all ours. Appreciate it. Matt Sheldon of the Charleston Battery. They take on FC Tulsa this Saturday at 8.30, 8.30 Eastern time. You can watch it online. And that'll be interesting for Matt to return back to that uh, team that he spent the last couple years with after they played earlier this year. The Battery will be home next next Wednesday, June 29th, 7.30, against Atlanta United 2 at Patriots Point. So get your tickets now at charlestonbattery.com for next Wednesday. As he said, 103 degrees in Tulsa this weekend. Ooh, I know what that's like playing sports in 100-degree weather. That's tough. Appreciate the time from Matt Sheldon, a viral sensation as well. Hey, when we come back, the best for last. We'll get to uh, Trent's Takes next. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. 
The Atlanta Braves lead the Giants 7-4. Bottom of the six right now. The Braves are the bases loaded with one out. We'll probably do power rankings tomorrow in Major League Baseball because we haven't, uh, I don't know if we've done this since the season started. Oh, you know what we did? I gave you the 10 best teams in baseball when um, when we started to turn our attention to baseball when uh, you know the NBA was winding down a few weeks back. We'll have to update now that the Braves are playing well. The Red Sox, the Guardians are playing much better now. So uh, we'll probably do that on the show tomorrow. I think baseball is probably the best sport to be to have a really good team, right? Like, it's got to be so fun. I was watching the Braves with their walk-off yesterday and the celebrations. When you're playing good baseball, I imagine that's the best of any of the sports because it's just so long. Baseball is so long. Like, when you're the Yankees and you are on pace to win 120 games, it's just night in and night out of winning. They came back yesterday down 4-1 and won. It's just every night you just keep winning. Basketball is a long season. You know, when the Warriors won 73 games, I'm sure that was a blast. They, they won almost every game. You never lose. Football, when the Patriots went 16-0, and of course, that's a lot of fun. But, you know, it's one game a week. Baseball, it's like, all right, we just won another seven in a row. We haven't lost in over a week. It's just night in and night out. You keep watching your team win, celebrate, have fun. Like the Braves right now are 17-3 and this month, right? It's just a bunch of celebrations all month long. Uh, that's probably pretty enjoyable. So the Braves right now lead 7-4. Uh, which is not great news for the newest Giants fan out there. But we'll find out what's on his mind nonetheless. It's time for Trent Stakes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panthers. right. It's time for Trent Stakes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, to address that uh, real quick about the Giants being down, I will say that the Atlanta Braves were up 7-0 at one point in this ball game, and mm. there still is some time left. So is that the Braves just not being able to close out games? Are they truly a championship team, or are they just a little bit scared that the Giants are potentially going to make a big comeback in this midday game not too worried about it once again Luke because the Giants are in a great position they got a nice nucleus around uh, Strada and Jock Peterson you name it we got it as far as talent goes the Braves you know bug on the windshield right now when it comes to the uh, major league uh, baseball season for the uh, San Francisco Giants I'm not too worried they were up 7-0 and we're coming back so I'm not too worried right now Luke Marlon. all right they are at the Braves they have left the door open so <laughs> look out here come the Giants yeah I, I get all the Braves hype you know what I'm saying obviously World Series champs things of that nature but never doubt the heart of a champion that being the San Francisco Giants now Luke Marlon, we were talking about young quarterbacks have kind of thrown it out there a little bit here and there I wanted to get your opinion uh, would you rather uh, take right now as far as to start an NFL franchise, talking about year uh, year two quarterbacks here, would you rather have Zach Willis, Wilson or Trey Lance to start a franchise with as a quarterback? Personally, I would say I would rather have Trey Lance because I see more upside, even though I was kind of dogging them. I see more upside in Trey Lance as far as not only his uh, throwing ability, but his running ability as well in an offense compared to Zach Wilson. What is your take, Luke Morrow? I would say Zach Wilson. Okay. Uh, I just think Trey Lance is a bigger project than Zach Wilson. And at least I've seen Zach play uh, for a long period of time in the NFL. It wasn't great last year, but I think Trey Lance is still just such a big question. Uh, plus, you know, he didn't play that final COVID year in college. He played one game, FCS quarterback. I just think there's too many questions still around Trey Lance. At least I've seen some of Zach Wilson. He wasn't great, but he did play a little better at the end of the year. We'll see what he does this year. But uh, I would take my chances with Zach Wilson. I think he's got a better arm as well. 
Pick your poison. I don't know if either are great options right now, but I'd go with Zach Wilson over Trey Lance. Yeah, I, I look at for me, I, I don't know why. I like a little bit more of a mobile quarterback just to get out of uh, some situations. Zach Wilson, Zach Wilson can move. There's no doubt about it. But I, I, I would personally pick uh, Trey Lance in that situation to build a team around. Now, Luke, I also want to say that we're talking about these young quarterbacks. We can't really harp on Justin Fields this season. I know last season wasn't great. Matt Nagy and the whole organization kind of blew up. And this season, you got to feel bad for the guy because they literally did zero to help him out. And he's going to be the starting quarterback. His top receiver is a four on good teams in the NFL. Mooney, I believe. Uh, Darnell Mooney, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. He is a number four wide receiver on the Chiefs, a number four wide receiver on the Rams. He is the number one wide receiver for the Chicago Bears. They don't have any help at tight end. The offensive line is absolutely abysmal. No help in the running back department. I mean, David Montgomery, how average can he be before you move on from somebody and trying to get better production from the running back room? I don't understand it. So I would say that we cannot harp on Justin Fields too hard this coming NFL season. I know oh, you got to fight through adversity, but let's not be fools here. You don't have one person that'll win you a Super Bowl, okay? You have to have an entire team around you that can have success in Justin Fields. I really like Justin Fields. I mean, had one of the most incredible seasons in college football history, 48 touchdowns and three interceptions his junior year at Ohio State. Absolutely incredible, and I think he can do similar things in the NFL, but the Bears aren't helping him out whatsoever, even on the defensive side, too. They don't have any help. They're going to be probably the worst team in football this coming year. If I was to make a prediction who's going to be, who could go, you know, 0-17, it's going to be the Chicago Bears. I think the Lions would be much better than them. I think every team in the NFL is going to be much better than Chicago Bears, even though they have better odds to win 10 games than a lot of teams. I don't think the Chicago Bears are going to be successful at all, and I don't think it's uh, Justin Fields' fault. I agree on those points. I think the Bears will be one of the worst teams in the league, and I think we still won't have a good read on Justin Fields. I think it's malpractice what the Bears have done with yeah. Justin Fields. At least last year they had an offensive coach in Matt Nagy. Now you bring in a defensive head coach who's never been a head coach before, and then on the offensive side they have nobody on the offensive staff who's ever called plays before. So you're giving Justin Fields a defensive coach who's never been a head coach, and nobody who's ever called plays. The offensive coordinator is a first-time offensive coordinator. He's, he was 37 when they hired him. The quarterback coach that's going to be working with Justin Fields came from the Vikings. Last year was his first time as a quarterback's coach. He's 33. So you have no experience on this staff, no sort of like when uh, Peyton Manning came to the Colts and they had um, uh, more. What's this? I could picture him. Long-time coach working with him on offense. Plus, even Tony Dungy, even though he's a defensive coach, was a, a long-time head coach. The Bears, they're just so young. Everybody's learning on the fly. It's going to make things so much tougher for Justin Fields. No weapons, as you mentioned. Right. The Bears have done a bad job trying to set up their young quarterback to succeed. Yeah, was that our coach you were talking about, Clyde Christensen, uh, by chance? I know he coached with – He was uh, there. Yeah, he was there for some time. I I'm not sure who the original quarterback coach was, but he coached Manning, uh, Brady – for, and, and Brady for a long time. I believe he's still in Tampa, Clyde Christian, if I'm not mistaken, working with Tom Brady. But do you really need to coach those guys at that point? It's more just like kind of, you know, I think joking around with them and making sure their uh, mechanics are right. But Tom Brady doesn't really need a quarterback coach at this point. Clyde Christian's kind of there just to make sure the room is looking good for the uh, backup quarterbacks. Tom Moore. Tom Moore. Who's also, he's a consultant with the Buccaneers as well. He's over there. Oh, well, they probably all went with B.A. once he, uh, once yeah. he went down there. That's probably a, a good fit. Now, Luca, uh, more NFL talk here. Should the Las Vegas Raiders have better odds in the AFC West right now? Currently, Kansas City's the favorite at plus 150. The Chargers and the Broncos are at plus 250 tied. 
and the Raiders plus 700 to win the AFC West. Now, I'm not a Raiders fan by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, obviously, Devontae Adams going there really hurt uh, my fandom when it comes to the Raiders. Is this more because I look at the Broncos roster compared to the Vegas roster, Vegas, in my opinion, has the better roster just overall as far as not only defensive, but pass catchers and running backs, things of that nature. But the Broncos have such higher odds. Luke, is that just because we're comparing Russell Wilson and, and uh, Derek Carr? Is that what the odds makers are thinking here? I don't think the Raiders will win the division, but they might have a better chance at you know beating the Broncos and beating the Chargers because, in my opinion, they have a much better and uh, fluid roster. My concerns for the Raiders is I think Carr is the worst quarterback, yeah. right, in the division. Now, look, he could still be a good quarterback. I do think he's underrated. But when you have the worst quarterback in the division, it is hard to try to compete with the other teams. I do trust Russell Wilson more. I like the Broncos roster more. And the Raiders, the other question is Josh McDaniels. He didn't work as a head coach last time. We all assume he's going to be better the second go-round, but I don't know. He's kind of got to prove it first. And the Raiders last year, they won 10 games. They were outscored last year. They gave up more points than they scored. So, again, going back to those analytics from last hour, you know, they kind of overachieved. So I do have some questions, some doubts for the Raiders. They made some good moves this offseason. They do have a good roster. But when you have the worst quarterback in division and you have a question at head coach and maybe overachieved last year, I have some questions about the Raiders this year in that tough division. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is tough, you know, to compete with uh, Kansas City and obviously Justin Herbert. You know, that's going to make it tough when you're comparing all the quarterbacks. Now, Luke, also notice that the Browns still have better odds to win 10-plus games at minus 195. Listen to these teams. They have better odds than to win 10 games. The Broncos, the Colts, the Chargers, the Bengals, the 49ers, and the Ravens. Does that make any sense to you? Because we don't know what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson. I also will point out that the odds, remember they shifted mm -hmm. from plus 200 to plus 270 to win uh, the AFC North, but now they're at plus 250. So I don't know. That's not a huge shift, but it's a you know sizable shift to where you can look at it. Do the odds makers know something about Deshaun Watson? Potentially, do they think he will play at some point this season? I find it baffling that they have better odds to win 10 games than all of those teams. The Broncos, I mean, the, the Bengals, the Chargers, like, and the Colts, you know, yeah. your team. Yeah, that's, right. that, those are your guys over there in Indianapolis. Should the Browns have better odds to, uh, you know, win 10 games over those teams personally? I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think so because you got to imagine Deshaun's going to be suspended for some amount of time, even if it's on the low end, let's say it's six games. Right. And then if they go 500, then you're talking about in the other 11 games, they got to go, what, seven and four with Deshaun? And that's going 500%. Yeah, you know, it's asking a lot. Uh, and they're in a, a pretty tough division, right? The Colts are in a pretty easy division. The Colts could go five and one against their division. Uh, the Browns are in a bit of a gauntlet there. So I'm with you. The movement in the odds, even if it's slight, it is moving in a favorable direction for Cleveland. Maybe because of these settlements, there does seem to be a sense that with these settlements of not all the cases, by the way, but almost like, uh, I don't know if it's just people like a sense of relief that they're happy to try to get some, get an ending to this story. But I almost feel like the the, the settling of 20 lawsuits is working in Deshaun's favor where yeah. people believe like, oh, right now the punishment may not be as severe as people were thinking even just a week ago. Right. And I, I saw from Josina Anderson today that the NFL and the NFLPA are currently arguing uh, over the because uh, there's one person that's like in the legal department for the NFL that makes the ultimate decision or excuse me, the recommendation to mm -hmm. Roger Goodell. And apparently uh, Goodell and the NFLPA are telling her something and she's saying, no, 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 this is what it's going to be. 
So that's going to be interesting to follow to see like how long the punishment actually is because Goodell cannot mess this up. That, that's it. If if it's four games, it's going to be bad. If it's six games, it's going to be bad. If it's a year, it probably still will be bad, but not as bad as Goodell thinks it's going to be. Yeah, worst case scenario for the NFL, they give him whatever punishment, let's just say six games, and then these other lawsuits don't get settled. Yep. And bad information, maybe he loses a lawsuit or more bad information comes out. It'd be like the Ray Rice thing, where they gave Ray Rice two games originally, and then the video came out, and it's like, are you kidding? You only gave two games for this? And Ray Rice never played again. Uh, that's the concern for the NFL is that you feel like you're in a good spot. You give him, let's just say, six games, and then these other women don't settle. We have some sort of trial or more information's released, and it's like, oh, boy, we only gave him six games. Now he's playing, and here's more information about the things he did. So it is a tough spot for the NFL, which is why maybe you just give a full year and buy yourself more time because you do not have to worry about this for at least another year until uh, he potentially comes back a year from now. And, and look, I know that what Calvin Ridley did as far as, you know, gambling while he was out for the season on games wasn't great, but you gave him a year suspension for, you know, putting less than $1,000 on a couple football games, even though he's in the NFL. And you got a guy who's got, you know, I know 20 of them have been settled, but there's still four civil cases out there. And all of the information that we've heard, you would think that it would at least be a year if you're if we're comparing suspensions to uh, other guys like Calvin Ridley. Yeah, and look, I'm a, I'm, I, I'm, I get unions. I've never been part of a union, but like, I'm all for unions. I'm not anti-union per se. Uh, you know, they call me Jimmy Hoffa around here. But um, <laughs> that's you know the union. They said they're going to go to war over the. That's it's kind of a tough. You got to do it. The union has right. to, but it's it's kind of a tough battle to pick to try to defend a guy with all these accusations. <laughs> yeah, that, that's got to be one of the more difficult things the NFLPA has seen recently. It's like, yeah. all right, we're we're going to defend him because he's a part of our union and he is a player, but. I mean, that's yeah. going to be a tough look for the NFLPA. Yeah, to go to bat and say, like, yeah, that's too strict of a punishment for a guy with 26 lawsuits and 66 massage therapists and all these accusations. But hey, that's the whole point. Of it. That's what they got to do. So we'll see how all this plays out. Maybe we'll get some sort of clarity in the next week and a half. We'll wrap up your Thursday when we come back. Some more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up your Thursday on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And the podcasts are available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page, and the podcasts are available there. Plus, you can always take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go by streaming us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store. And through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. Stream us there. Um, appreciate listeners checking in from at least seven different states and multiple countries on this Thursday. Hey, the NBA draft is tonight. Of course, we'll have any uh, takeaways and reactions to it on the show tomorrow. I assume Jabari Smith goes one to the Magic. They like length, and I think they go Jabari. Uh, I would guess Chet Holmgren goes two to the Thunder. They have a bunch of picks, so they can be the team that takes a big swing. And then Paolo Boncaro probably goes three to the Rockets. And I would also guess that the Kings will trade out of four. And they'll eventually they'll make the best deal for them. They'll have plenty of offers. Somebody's going to move up 
and Jaden Ivey will probably go fourth overall. But we'll see what happens tonight. We'll break it down tomorrow. We won't know for maybe a couple of years, but I do think Paolo Boncaro is the best player in this draft. I do like Jabari Smith, and I'm not very big on Chet Holmgren's NBA future. But we'll see maybe a few years from now. Whatever happens with the draft tonight, we'll break it down tomorrow. In the meantime, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio.